Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're also out there on Facebook, too. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Get them through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen, leave reviews, share with friends, bring everybody into the fun. Also, find us on Patreon, too, as many of you have. Patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free through your assistance. There's entry level there for support and voting privileges and a few extras here and there. Mid-level for early access to shows, sometimes days in advance, and at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level best friends level, where you get early access and higher audio quality and monthly exclusive content shows and remastered episodes and playlists and even more. That is all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Join us there. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am doing fine, Scott. I uh, just put a new read into my Shania. Uh I've tuned all the strings on my sitar, and I also have to point out that I am not going to be able to make the next episode because I'm recording with another podcast instead. I'll be back, though. <laughs> good, because we're going to be short on material. And it would be good if you could return and help us out for. Well, we could we could do some some live outtakes from one of our earlier podcasts if you want. <laughs> Put it on the um. Jeff's on Twitter at esoteric cd, and our guest on today's program is a return guest from uh, well, a little more than a year ago. As I went through some old emails, uh, he's the Patrick Hotung Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. His most recent book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit, will be published by Harvard University Press. It's now available for pre-order at Amazon. You can also find him on Twitter at Randy E. Barnett, which makes sense because it is Randy Barnett. Randy, how are you doing? I'm feeling all right. <laughs> feeling pretty good myself. Outstanding. Yeah, not doing too good myself, I have to say. I changed it. Yeah. You'll uh, remember Randy from the Zombies Rod Argent episode from uh, last year. He's back again, and uh, we give you the opportunity, Randy, to uh, tell us uh, a little bit first about you, your job at Georgetown, maybe a bit about the book, anything people should know about what you're up to. Well, first of all, I just have to say I'm so honored to be back. I, I, I've argued in the Supreme Court one time, but I got to be on Political Beats twice, so it's like twice as good as arguing in the Supreme <laughs> Court somehow. We think so. Yes. So, uh, well, I'm a law professor. I do nowadays, I used to do contract law. And now I do all con law, constitutional law, um, have a whole bunch of books and um, uh, really uh, enjoy my job, the, uh, uh, the writing and the teaching part of it. And the new, the new book coming out, uh, which I'm very excited about, is called The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. It's letter and spirit. And it's something that uh, political conservatives and libertarians uh, have given short shrift to the 14th Amendment. We spend all our time talking about the founding and the founders, and we really ought to be spending um, a lot of time, maybe almost as much time, talking about the Republicans who um, and the anti-slavery constitutionalism that led up to the Republican Party, the Republican Party, which ultimately uh, ended slavery, um, and devised these amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which some people have correctly referred to as our second founding. Um, and I do think it's part of the narrative of this country that needs to be restored. 
And hopefully this book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, its letter and spirit will help out in that restoration. We look forward to that. Uh, Pre-order now and uh, available uh, everywhere November 2nd of 2021, in case people are listening to this years down the road. Uh, and uh, Randy's back for another band uh, that that is uh, that is similar to, uh, to to his past episode in that there's there's different parts here there's moving parts there's a lot of slashes as we introduce what we're going to do today it encompasses a whole lot uh, and and the through line is kind of Steve Winwood so we have the Spencer Davis group we have traffic we have Steve Winwood we have Blind Faith uh, we have Dave Mason there's a little bit of everything for your tastes out there but we center this really around those traffic years. And so I'll throw it back over to Randy for him to tell us why you love traffic, how you got into them, and, and why other people should care about this music, the band made. Well, thanks. This is very much like the Zombies Argent um, uh, selection that I made, which was the Zombies hit me hard when I was in grade school, high school, um, and Argent hit me in college. So they were very important in my formative years. And in this case, um, um, uh, it was Spencer Davis Group, uh, Stevie Winwood's uh, first band when he was 14 years old, um, uh, which hit me hard when I was in uh, grade school, high school. My band, the Royal Knights, played two of those songs, Give Me Some Lovin' and I'm a Man, once we got an organist. And I want to have a shout out to my bandmates, uh, Keith Southwick, our drummer, Bill Eskew, our lead guitar player, and uh, Bruce Goble, our bass player, Jim Reed, our organist. Um, uh, that was a great time for me. Uh, and those were big songs. Um, and then I discovered Traffic when I was in college. Um, I didn't realize they'd actually come out when I was in high school. I actually I was familiar with some of the covers, as we'll get into some of the covers of their songs in high school by Three Dog Night and, and uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears. But I didn't really know Traffic until I got to college. They had a huge impact. I really associate them with the dorm, uh, with being a college student, uh, starting with John Barleycorn Must Die. And in you know October of 1971, I got to see them perform live at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And from that day till this day, I've intersected uh, with traffic in, in a number of different ways. So for example, I saw traffic live. And in, that could be uh, taken so many different ways, Randy. I've intersected <laughs> right. with traffic. That, that, that's my commute home on well, a daily basis. Yeah, this is intersectionality um, right. uh, at work here. Uh, I saw uh, uh, Clapton and Winwood play live um, at uh, in Las Vegas at the MGM, and they did lots of uh, traffic and blind faith songs together. Uh, I saw Spencer Davis play, uh, uh, his band play in 2007, 17 on the Flower Power Cruise. It was prior to his uh, unfortunate death in 2020. And I saw Dave Mason play um, in 2019 at Ram's Head. Uh, and so I've had all these uh, uh, associations with traffic going all the way back. And uh, I like to pick a band that I, that I still can get into. And I think one of the things, one of the lessons from this particular segment is this music uh, sounds as good today as it ever sounded. It does not sound dated. Well, I'll put the, I'm going to put my, I'll put that, uh, some of that Stevie Winwood 80 stuff to one side. The rest of it does not, does not sound dated at all. And everybody um, uh, should listen to Traffic and uh, also Dave Mason and Blind Faith. Sun goes down, the 
Whatsoever when I was young, but you know who meant something to me? I'll tell you who meant something, and that was Steve Winwood. You know, Randy just sort of casually tossed out, Oh, you know, that 80s stuff that sounds dated. Hey, you know what? That's my kind of date, okay? Because I grew up in the 80s, I came of age in the 80s, and when I was five, six, seven years old, you know what CD was in the car every time we took a road trip up to western New York to visit my grandparents? That's right, my friend, it was Back in the High Life by Steve Winwood. All right, Higher Love. Um, the finer things back in the high life again. Those songs were basically imprinted on my brain the same way that like early Genesis was imprinted on my brain. That's how I knew Steve Winwood. I didn't realize that he had had such a prehistory. And in fact, one of the great shocks of my life is that when I finally went and um, when I was in college, I bought this a four CD box set out there. It's a really good one uh, called The Finer Things, uh, which chronicles Winwood's entire career. Um, I found out that. Oh, what? Give me some loving? That song? That's Steve Winwood? I mean, I should have known, right? Because it's the same singing voice. But what you don't understand is that I'm, I'm listening to a song on the radio, which, you know, you would play Give Me Some Lovin' on Oldies Radio, right? And you hear that voice, and it sounds like, you know, a 35-year-old black blues man screaming. Steve Winwood was 17 years old when he wrote and sang that song. So we're talking about somebody who's just preternaturally talented, starting from the he, – he joined the Spencer Davis group when he was 14 years old, mm -hmm. people. 14 years old. Randy just tossed that out casually like it's no big thing. 14 years old is when this guy started his music career. And it's a fascinating music career. And it encompasses so many other people who are going to be just sort of sucked into this orbit. And that or that he revolves around in different orbits. It's like one of these weird, like, you know, double star systems where there's like every, you know, planets revolving around two different suns. It's a fascinating career that sort of kind of takes in the, the multiplicity of the late 1960s, early 70s UK rock scene in particular. Um, but what was so fascinating to find out about Winwood, the more I went back and I discovered stuff, is that he had so many different sort of, I guess, faces. You know, yeah, early blues rock with Spencer Davis Group, then Psychedelia with Traffic, then, you know, Supergroup, Blind Faith, then sort of prog rock with the Reunited Traffic also sort of a Fairport Convention vibe in some ways as well. Then his solo career, which I actually think has some serious highlights, where he starts sort of one-man banding it like Prince would, <laughs> overdubbing every single instrument, playing every single note on every album that he does. And then, of course, in the late 80s, then he becomes like, you know, your slick, you know, beer-friendly number one U.S. hit single artist. Um, and, you know, nowadays, of course, people think of him as sort of an old man nostalgia act, the way they think of Clapton. But I'm going to just be honest and say that I, I rate Steve 
Winwood so much highly, so much more highly than, than Eric Clapton. Everybody says Clapton is God. I mean, I don't, you know, I think there's only one God in my opinion, but if I'm going to talk about musical gods, I'd take Winwood over Clapton any day, even though they collaborated several times, because Winwood had so many different ways to play and sing and write, and although he didn't always succeed, he always through the first two and a half decades of his career came out with fascinating stuff centered mostly around keyboards but also around that white soul voice which is i think the second greatest white boy blues voice of all time i I put only daryl hall of hall and oats above him and i say you know maybe leon russell comes in at number three or thereabouts uh and that's that's basically your top three um the the vast catalog of music that he was involved in, um, not only his own music, but playing on other people's stuff or, you know, having friends and come around and just like, I'll get together and jam. <laughs> you could spend days exploring the kind of things that Steve Winwood has appeared on. And so that's why I think it's kind of a shame that he's, you know, sort of now treated as like, oh, it's dad rock, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. It's a fundamental cornerstone of what was great about late 60s and early 70s uh, sort of musical fusion. much time here on my introduction we can jump into the music but i will say that one thing uh, i'm the same age as jeff so uh i, I do hold also we'll see how, we'll see which time we have the end to, to spend on the uh, the 80s output of steve winwood but i do like a good portion of it I, I really do and the one thing that that always stood out to me about winwood is the voice which is saying something when you consider how great of a you know keyboardist organist how great of a really guitar player he is uh, even drummer on some of his albums, but t- to me, uh, as a as a listener, uh, that voice always stuck out. Whether it was on the you know the High Life album, whether it was going back to While You See a Chance, or all the way back to to Give Me Some Love and, and Spencer Davis, his voice is uh, singular and 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 so distinctive, and that's what really made his work stand out uh, among. Uh, among so many others during the time he was active, but he still is, still touring. A friend saw him last, well, it wouldn't have been last year, I suppose. But no, definitely not. <laughs> the year before, I guess, uh, on his last tour, where again, he, he plays just about every instrument known to man during the course of a, of a two-hour concert. Uh, and I, I, I guess we'll talk more about that through our, through our episode, but when we go back to the start, uh, he's in a band that didn't even feature his own name, Spencer Davis Group. Uh, way back in 1963 is when the Spencer Davis group formed. And uh, a, a handful of albums and a, and a handful of hits. But this is where the Steve Winwood story starts as a teenager. 
Well, the funny thing about the Spencer Davis group is that there's there's a fine tradition in the UK of having like you know some random guy's name be the the name of the band, whereas the featured players right. are not in it. So you think of like John Miles Blues Breakers, right? It was never about John Miles. It was about whoever the lead guitarist was at the time, whether it was Eric Clapton, or it was you know. Uh, Peter Green or something like that, or a Mick Taylor for that matter. You know, those guys all went on to rather notable careers elsewhere. Um, uh, same with Spencer Davis. He was the guitarist, but of course, it was really about uh, these two brothers, Steve Winwood and his older brother Muff Winwood. By the way, Muff, what a name! Um, well, those, those Brits have a, have, a, have a thing for weird <laughs> nicknames. Um, his older brother actually went on to become a record executive after the end of the Spencer Davis group years. But they inducted you know, his kid brother, Stevie Winwood, when he was 14 years old. And why did they do it? Because this guy got up, this kid, this prepubescent kid, got up and just started singing soul and blues songs. And it's, it's ridiculous to listen to like early Spencer Davis songs like Dimples. You know, I got dimples on my chin. Do 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 do. I got my eyes on you. He's 15, 16 years old when he's singing that song. All right. There's a zero percent chance you would have ever guessed that he was <laughs> if you had just heard the track. I walk that walk. Yeah, talk that talk. I want you walk that walk. You my baby got my eyes on you. And that was kind of like almost like the Elvis Presley trick. You know, they always say the way how did Elvis succeed on the radio in the 50s is because he was a. You know, it was, you know, somebody said, you know, give me a white guy with the black voice and I'll make him a star. Well, he, okay, give me a 15-year-old kid who sounds like a, like a mature adult and I will make him a star. And that was Steve Winwood. Uh, those early Spencer Davis tracks are just remarkable because uh, you just can't understand. It's almost like Alex Chilton singing. Uh, right. I was about to say that. The uh, letter, letter, you know. Yep, yep. The, my baby wrote me a letter. Alex Chilton was like 16 or 17 when he sang that song. How did the that voice come out of children children this young the other thing i'll say about the voice i was watching a documentary about winwood and other uh british rockers at the time would go see him play uh with spencer davis group and winwood would imitate ray charles and they actually played a recording of winwood doing ray charles and it sounds just like ray charles and this I'm is fine. when he's still in uh, spencer davis group uh, I when in 2009, his he has that high voice. That high voice was still there. He doesn't look like he should have that high voice anymore, but he's, <laughs> he's got old he's and got gray. It. <laughs> I mean, and, and the thing about the Spencer Davis group is that they had the same kind of parallel evolution that a lot of other bands during that 60s UK era did. I think a good analog would be the Moody Blues. And everybody knows the Moody Blues now is like you know the classic stone psychedelic art rocker types, you know. Days of Future Past, you know, Timothy Leary's Dead and all of that stuff. Well, they were a blues band when they first started with Denny Lane, who later went, went on to become part of Wings mm -hmm. as their lead singer and, you know, their, their, 
their sort of leader. Um, and then, of course, they started evolving into something more psychedelic in tune with the times and then by 1967 that's when you know that's when you know knights in white satin is coming out after lane has left well it's the same thing with spencer davis except that winwood stayed for a while so they started and they had a their first big hit was still in their early r&b mold and it's a great song called keep on running and it's just got that classic tamla motown beat and of course there's winwood singing like he belongs in a juke joint and this is their first number one hit in the united kingdom and that's the point where steve winwood becomes like a name in the music business even though he's still 16. U.S., uh, there were two um, uh, radio set, you know, groups of radio stations, black radio stations and white radio stations. So the two keep on running really, really moved up the black radio station charts sure. um, until um, they somebody saw a picture <laughs> of, the, of the guys who were singing it. And then it was dropped from all the playlists. It's like not only is it a white guy, but it's a white guy who can't buy alcohol <laughs> <laughs> or vote. I mean, he's like 16 years old, and, he look, and he's got like he's got a really kind of goofy, bad tooth British smile in those early photos. Oh, it's so cute in a way to hear him do that kind of music. And so Spencer Davis has like a whole series of hit singles. I don't know what you guys think of these. I love this sort of early kind of blues R and B stuff. It's always kind of been in my wheelhouse because I'm I'm a student of 60s music i i love like songs like somebody help me when i come home uh but of course when he really hits the big time is two things happen one winwood says you know what i don't have to cover songs i can write my own songs and this is going to be the pattern that he follows for a long time he will usually get lyrical collaborators mm -hmm. because he doesn't like doing lyrics he can write his own music but on these songs he wrote them himself and the first one he wrote uh, was a song that he had produced by another man who was soon to become famous, a uh, man named Jimmy Miller. Why do you know that name? Well, if you're a Rolling Stones fan, you know that name because he produced all of the Rolling Stones' classic mid or late 60s and early 70s albums, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street. Uh, this is you know, the foundation of his legend, but the beginning of it was the work that he did with the Spencer Davis group and then Steve Winwood's next project. And the song that Winwood wrote is something that you know basically in your DNA and it give me some love.
from the moment that you and then you Miller is so great on percussion he understands you know you bring in the tambourine then you start shaking maracas drums come in and it all builds slowly builds slowly and by the time it gets to that chorus where I'm so glad we made it I want you to give me some love and there's just like a, a chorus of Muppets in the background singing give me give me some love and they're not even in particularly like well-tuned harmonies but it just sounds like a party it just sounds like a party in your ears and it's one of the most magnificently you know orgiastically joyful singles of the entire 1967 era There's a great juxtaposition between the sort of party chaos that Jeff describes and the metronome steadiness of that thick bass track that never wavers throughout the song. Uh, I think that's that's uh, uh, one of its strong points. There's a great story about the recording of this song, too, and the writing of the song, in, in that Spencer Davis Group was looking for a hit. They had not had one for a while, so the manager essentially put them in a, put them in a room Gave him the instrument and said, you, you got to write a hit song. We need a, another number one single. We, we need something happening here. So he leaves them. They proceed to write and sort of sketch out Give Me Some Lovin' in about 30 minutes. They just, they have it. They, they've got it. So they go and head down the street to a cafe. Manager comes back, finds them not at their instruments, not <laughs> writing a song, freaks out when he finds them at the cafe. And the band all says, hey. Don't we worry. got it. We got it. Let us finish our drinks, and we'll go back and listen. And they did, and of course, um, well, the manager agreed. It was a hit. Uh, and Give Me Some Lovin' is one of those songs that is never far from the mind, whether it be in a commercial, a movie trailer, a movie itself, on the radio, classic rock, uh, whatever format it might be. It is, uh, it was, what, two in the U.K., seven in the U.S. wasn't a number one song, but number seven in the U.S., and, uh, and just a tremendous achievement for what was then still just a 17, 18-year-old kid and Steve Winwood. Hey, hey, Randy, did you sing lead vocal on this one? I did indeed, although I cannot swear that any of the words I sang were the right words. <laughs> yes! I, 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 I spent decades just making my own words up to that song. I don't know what the words are even now. I... I uh, um, uh, I did sing that song, and we did that, and I, I'm a man. Uh, those are the two songs that we played. And uh, But we, I always thought of, until I did this podcast and I started reading the lyrics of all these songs, um, I, I always thought that uh, Steve Winwood was like the famous, the, mo- the, the best example of a rocker 
uh, vocalist who you're not actually even supposed to understand the words of the song. <laughs> it's like his his voice is just another instrument. Oh, I agree. Um, I mean, I would say him in actually a completely different genre. Yes. John Anderson of Yes. Don't listen to the words to songs by Yes. <laughs> Just listen to the music. Although now that I, you know, I have read some of the lyrics, almost all of which were for Traffic written by Capaldi, I, the lyrics are all like nutty. I mean, they're, they, they're lyrics, the lyrics are just great sounds. They don't actually add up necessarily to a, a story or a message. I mean, speaking of I'm a man, you know, you, you, I ask people sometimes, I don't ask them, I, I tell them because, you know, that's my style. I, I'm a teacher. I say, you know why you like Jumping Jack Flash so much? Because what's the trick on Jumping Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones? It's the first song that Jimmy Miller produced for them, right? It's that second verse <clears throat> where all of a sudden the maracas start coming in. It goes, and it just it's a subtle move that heightens the tension of the song. And Jimmy Miller stole it from what he did for Spencer Davis on I'm a Man. Because that song starts with that little percussion thing, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, halfway through, the maracas come in, and all of a sudden, wow, I'm in some sort of percussive thing about give me some lovin i do uh prefer uh the traffic version of give me some lovin that uh that's on welcome to the canteen oh um, i like and, that one but i don't know if i'd go that far. And, and uh last night in order to sort of get myself psyched up for the podcast i watched maybe three different live versions of give me some lovin including one on the dave letterman show with the with the band yeah. at, at the tonight show i saw um uh, so it was uh, but it's I, I think that uh it's a song that holds up a lot better than people uh, know because they only know the single, the Spencer Davis single, which is great. But there is this other kind of version of Give Me Some Lovin' that just gets you going. And it always almost pushed it into my top five, which was a big surprise to me. I never would have. I di it didn't make it, but I I'm surprised it came so close. Scott? Um, I'm a man. Are you, are you gonna Are you gonna try to tell us that you think the Chicago cover of "I'm a Man" is better than Spencer Davis's original? No, I am not here to tell you that. But I, 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 I do. I, I do like that. By the way, I've I always liked that. the track, and uh, I, I ended up using it in a in a radio promo some years ago. So actually, I, I still play it. So I, I still play it in class with some of my students. We had uh, um, Rush Limbaugh at the time was number one among men in 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 town for the uh, for the midday show and so i set the promo to of course i'm a man you know if you're a man you're tuned in here to to rush so it's got a great yeah, obviously bed to use to uh, to to lay down a, a radio promo for anyone looking for something like that out there but uh two other very quick songs i want to mention from spencer davis before we move on and uh they're both from well what was in the uk the second album which is called the second album 
and they've been repackaged and put in different places uh, uh, on various compilations. But there's one called Look Away that I like a lot. Norman Mead, who wrote Time Is On My Side, wrote it, along with Burt Russell, who wrote Twist and Shout and Hang On Sloopy. There's a good pedigree there. And um, it's certainly a very American song, very American sentiment in the lyrics. Uh, uh, Look Away Before She Sees the Tears in My Eyes. There's even a line, uh, Smiles of Poor Disguise, which is, you know, like Tracks of My Tears. And uh, it's, again, early Winwood vocals that really soar, especially on the chorus. With the eyes and the lips and the skin that I know so well I know they're both gonna look at me if I smile that's a pretty And one other I'll mention quickly is Hey Darlin', which is also on the second album, and where most of this early Spencer Davis stuff is, you know, upbeat, uh, poppy, R&B, this is a darker, slower feel. It's also one of the originals, one of the few originals they would write on these early albums, very heavy on the R&B and soul covers and standards. But this one is a nice break from some of the up-tempo stuff that they were doing, it's a slow cooker. It's an original, as I said, and uh, that—that's another one that stuck out stuck out to me as I listened through this early Spencer Davis group music. Well, my mama told me about girls like you. Oh, oh, oh Mama told me mm-hmm. But girls of your kind One last uh, comment on I'm a Man, which uh, is actually Winwood's comment, which will transition us. Uh, here's what he said about it. He says, it was significant because it was the last Spencer Davis group for traffic. It was significant transition because we were using these Afro-Caribbean elements in that music. And then we went on to traffic to combine that with many more elements like folk music and jazz music to try and combine all these elements. So he viewed this as a precursor. The I'm a Man was actually, because of the instrumentation, a precursor to traffic. One of the interesting things, and the last thing I'll say before we move on to traffic, which is kind of the meat of this show, is um, I'm a big aficionado of organ and keyboard sounds. And I have always considered basically the platonic ideal Mm. of a great organ sound is the one that you hear on Gimme Some Lovin' and uh, I'm a Man. You know, like where it goes, Mm -hmm. it's like this really dirty, kind of almost overfed, overheated Hammond organ sound. It's, it's it's like again sweaty R and B and you get it on I'm a Man too where you know do 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 the amazing keyboard sounds were kind of like almost like Winwood had reached a peak 
with what he could do in that early R&B phase, which is why he said to himself, I think, uh, well, you know, it's time to do something else. And so Randy talks about fusion. And the one thing he, he, he didn't mention is that um, what happens next when he leaves the Spencer Davis group, strikes out on his own, uh, but of course he's not a solo artist at this point. He's never entirely comfortable being a solo artist. He wants to collaborate with people. Is that he, he develops a very kind of uniquely British sort of a band. Uh, and, and, and what does he bring in? Uh, he brings in a, a guy who's a drummer named Jim Capaldi, who's a songwriter as well and a, dr and a great drummer and, and the lyricist for most of their music. And he gets a woodwind player and a saxophone player named Chris Wood. And then they find a guy called Dave Mason, uh, I think also from Birmingham or thereabouts. And he is a more of a pop-oriented, psychedelic pop-oriented songwriter who has a real affection for Indian instrumentation. Yes. <laughs> and this is what brings us to the first Traffic album, Mr. Fantasy. This is one of those albums that is legendary in its own right, but also kind of created a series of British cliches. You know, there's one of the things that I refer I referenced back in our Genesis episode is the cliche about British bands like getting it together in the country. Like they leave London and they go off to some cottage with no electricity or running water and they, they write songs and stuff like that. I believe that the, the cottage that Traffic, the newly formed band, moved to in early 67 uh, didn't even have electricity, so they had to like import generators so they could plug their instruments into play. Uh, and what they end up coming up with on the first Traffic album, Mr. Fantasy, is one of those things that's both uniquely British, but also, I think, just has stood the test of time for the most part, in that it, it's psychedelic and yet not so trapped in its psychedelic whimsy, aside from a few songs, I think, like uh, Berkshire Poppies and mm. Utterly Simple are a little bit, I guess, are a little bit oompa oompa being for the benefit of Mr. Kite to my tastes, but the rest of this album just stands up as a weird psychedelic rock fusion that lives, and it has still lived today, and I, the reason for that is that Mason, who has his own completely different songwriting style, and Winwood combine with the other two members of the band, whose contributions just cannot be understated, uh, Capaldi and Wood uh, are so critical to what Traffic would sound like. The woodwinds, the haunting flutes and saxophones, the the very, very uh, sort of subtle tribal drum beats that Capaldi would play, and his nonsensical lyrics for that matter, <laughs> gives Traffic a completely different sound than any of these other bands from the late 60s. And you first hear it on songs like Paper Sun, which is the debut single for Traffic. Uh, which is, you know, you, you think you're having good times with a girl that you've just met, Winwood singing, uh, and it's just all this sort of almost acid tinge. You can feel the acid dripping off of the walls as you listen to the song. Um, but I love Paper Sun. I love all of the, like, the sitars, the tamburas that Mason is playing in the background. Um, this is, like, to me, it's almost a platonic ideal of great British late 70s psychedelic pop music. When you're feeling tired and lonely, you see people going home.
The Paper Sun is got to number five in the UK, and it's going to be on my top five as well. Um, uh, Winwood and Compaldi actually wrote the song in March of '67. Before, while Winwood was still in Spencer Davis Group, and Capaldi was a member of the band Deep Feeling. Uh, they were touring together, and after a show in Newcastle, the two uh, got together in a hotel room and put the song together. Um, uh, Capaldi said that he was half asleep lying there with his lyric in his head about 3.30 in the morning, and he woke up uh, Winwood with this idea, and they went to the living room, and then there was an upright piano in the living room, and they finished the song. Uh, so I agree with you. Uh, I think it's, again, it's going to be in my top five of traffic songs, uh, and although we're going to talk about how hard it is to pick five traffic songs. Um, uh, and, uh, it features Mason on the sitar, which, and, I, and I'll have to tell you, this is probably the only, uh, sitar, uh, included, uh, piece of music that I like so much. Cause I'm, when I hear a sitar, I usually go the other way. <laughs> you're not, you're not a big fan of like within you, without you by the Beatles or well, actually, I, I, I actually love both those songs. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, 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 you know what? Indian, Indian instrument. And also, you know what, the, what people don't realize is that street fighting man would not be the song that it is without Brian Jones, like for whatever random reason, insisting on playing sitar and tambora all over that thing. You don't hear it in your ears specifically, but it's there in the mix and, mm-hmm. it, and it creates those things actually had some real like quality to them in the late sixties. Although they seem, you know, people just think of them and they roll their eyes now. They say, Oh, it's so dated, but I'm a sucker for that kind of music. And that's why traffic's first album is always just been such a huge joy for me. I looked in the sky where an elephant's eye was looking at me from a bubble gum tree. And all the time you was the hole in my shoe which was letting in water. I actually only discovered this. Randy, you told us in our pre-show notes that, like, you were familiar with later period traffic first, with, like, you know, John Barleycorn, low spark of high-heeled boys and such. Uh, And then you only really kind of discovered the earlier phase of the band when you got that Smiling Phases compilation. Correct, correct. Guess what? That's how I discovered Traffic 2, that two-CD <laughs> set. It's a, it's out of print now. I mean, you can get all the songs in various other places. But, man, that's a great little compilation, and it was what turned me into a Traffic fan. Uh, Scott, I don't know how or when you discovered this album. It could have been as recently as this week. But what do you think about Dear Mr. Fantasy? Yeah, this is uh, what, late 1967. It's one that uh, I, I entered Traffic through Low Spark and then worked around that so this is one of the ones i was less familiar with as we were prepping for the program um and i still think it's a little uneven um you know jeff had mentioned songs like uh what um, utterly simple and i would say maybe house for everyone too aren't uh, they're both mason tracks i really like dave mason's output but not so much on this album Right, he took a a huge left turn after this, and that's the funny thing. Yeah, everything past this is really high quality, but I think the Mason stuff here is probably my least favorite, weakest, yes. And uh, it was left off the U.S. version, well, at least a couple of Mason songs were left off the U.S. version of this album because he had already left the band by the time it came out here in the U.S. Why give him any sort of credit? They'd reverse that shortly. Uh, but this is, you know, you certainly hear that kind of the, the psychedelic, the, the Sergeant Pepper sort of influence in some places, especially on a couple of those Mason tracks. These are, you know, these are pop 
length songs. They're not the, the jazzy prog length things you might be thinking of when it comes to Low Spark of High Heeled Boys or things that would come later. Uh, these are essentially, you know, two, three, maybe four minute long songs, uh, well arranged, uh, you know, played very professionally. And um, there are a couple things, you know, the opening track, Have It Is In Your Mind. I do like that. It, it's, it's psychedelic, yet it's, it's punchy, right? It still has that punch of a good sort of pop band, pop rock band of, of the time. It also um, has that, that, that Spencer Davis group, you know, doom, 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 doo, 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 except the difference is now suddenly there's a saxophone tooting away mm-hmm. in the background and then, and then a recorder overdubbed over top of it. And you're like, okay, I'm not listening to the Spencer Davis group anymore. I'm listening <laughs> to something very different. One of you will talk about Dear Mr. Fantasy, so I'll leave that for a moment. And the other song I want to highlight from this first album is uh, is Colored Rain. Uh, I like that one a lot. It's a Capaldi and Winwood and Wood track. You don't always get those three guys writing together, but it's one that they all got credits on. And uh, it's really neat. It's uh, The verses are more soul-based. The, the bridge and the chorus are sort of jazzy, psychedelic rock based. So you, you have both worlds coming together. You know, the way that Winwood holds that note on, on Rain in the chorus and sort of lets the track, the backing track, come up to meet him where he's at is really powerful. Prominent saxophone part, probably why Wood got the writing credit on Colored Rain. But that might be, and everyone knows Dear Mr. Fantasy, but Colored Rain might be my favorite track on this debut from Traffic. I can see the Heaven uh, is in your mind. This is this is how I was able to piece together when I first started listening to Traffic because I didn't even know that was a Traffic song until fi- Smiling Faces came out. Phases came out. Um, I first heard that as uh, a Three Dog Night cover in 1968, which was on their album One, which I just absolutely love that album. Um, and so I will, in some sense, 
always think of it as the Three Dog Night song because mm. that's how I knew of it for years. I would throw out all the Mason psychedelic songs that are on this album and never listen to them again. <laughs> the, the other um, uh, top, it's going to make my top five, um, is the No Face, No Name, No Number song. I just love that song. Uh, I sort of get moisty-eyed every time I hear it. Um, I didn't discover that song until the Smiling Faces album, so actually it's a song that I got into in the 90s. Um, the scenery is all the same to me. Nothing has changed or faded. I'm a part of it. It's a part of me, painted cool green and shaded. I really just really love that song. I want to agree with Scott about Colored Rain. I think that's a fantastic song. It's a great traffic uh, song with a strong, really strong uh, vocal opening by Winwood before the instruments join him. Um, he just starts singing and then the instruments come in, which is unusual for starting a song. And then we can talk about uh, uh, Mr. Fantasy. Dear Mr. Fantasy is a song, okay, everybody thinks of Steve Winwood, and when they think of Steve Winwood, they think of keyboards, synthesizers, anything that involves you know, something that you keys. play with your fingers, yeah. keys, right? <laughs> Steve Winwood is actually an incredibly accomplished electric guitarist, and people don't realize that. On every Traffic album, every time you hear an electric guitar, that's Steve Winwood playing it. If there's an acoustic guitar, it's Dave Mason, okay? Because that's Mason was more of a folky type, and he wrote more folky pop songs. On his own records, he would play electric guitar as well. Um, Dear Mr. Fantasy ends with this climactic guitar solo uh, that sounds like Jimi Hendrix, frankly. And, of course, they probably knew Hendrix uh, at this point. They certainly knew him later. But, you know, they were very tuned into the London scene, and they probably were listening to stuff like Hey Joe and Purple Haze and thought to themselves, hey, you know what, we, should, we can introduce some of that. And Steve Winwood just, you know, the guy you thought of as, like, the keyboardist who sings Blue-Eyed Soul suddenly rattles off a guitar solo for the ages at the end of that song. It's a fantastic performance, and it's the longest track on the album. You know, Scott was talking about everything else is like very kind of brisk and tightly wound. You know, two, three minute songs. Dear Mr. Fantasy is about six minutes, and it ends with this long jam to play out. Um, it is it's not one second of it that is self indulgent, and it's just one of those things that Winwood doesn't get appreciated for how great a guitarist he was, on top of being, you know, all of his other talents.
There's just so many great songs on this record that I haven't mentioned. Dealer, I think, is fantastic. And it, it opens with this very sinister acoustic opening. And, you know, who's the dealer? I assume it's a drug dealer. When the dealer comes to town, you know, he, 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 he takes stock and he looks around. Um, and it's this, this sort of like almost semi-acoustic shuffle that's deeply sinister. And I believe that, you know, it's one of the very few times that Jim Capaldi actually gets a lead vocal. He sings half of it. And the only thing is that Capaldi actually has a really great singing voice, um, which kind of makes you wonder why he didn't do more singing on Traffic albums. I guess, you know, when Steve Winwood is the guy who's in your right. band. It's you know, the same you're... reason why Don Felder didn't sing Victim of Love for the Eagles, yeah. right? Oh, oh, that... <laughs> oh, okay. Reference to classic Eagles beef. Okay, so, uh, yes, Mr. Felder didn't sing Victim of Love because, yes, we had Don Henley and Glenn Fry to do it instead. But uh, actually... Eric Eric Clapton tells a story about how um, uh, in um, uh, uh, what's it the pray, pray what's oh gosh I drew, just drew a blank on the name of the song Presence of the Lord Presence of the Lord he wrote that song it's a, clearly a Clapton song but he said he wrote it an octave higher than he could sing it right. to make sure that Wynn would be the one that would sing it because he didn't he, yeah because he didn't want to have to be forced to Clapton never had any confidence in his own voice which is strange because I actually think Eric Clapton has a good voice. The one last thing I want to say is that the best song on this album isn't actually on this album. All right, and that's the irony of Mr. Fantasy. The best song on this album was a B-side, uh, and it made it onto the American version of this album, and it's the song Smiling Faces, which Ooh. was originally put onto uh, you know, Heaven Is In Your Mind, the American release of the album, and then also became the title of that compilation that Randy and I have both talked about. But that is just again it's everything traffic in our early years you know it opens with these big powerful drums you know organ in the background you've got a uh, you know chris wood fluting about right in the end in, in the beginning and then there's backing vocals and then steve winwood blows through like a hurricane with his best vocal maybe of his entire first part of his career Just again, it's rapture. It's pure musical rapture. I have no idea why it was wasted on a B side. That was the British way. Throw away some of your best stuff on the flip sides of singles just to prove that you're so good that you can do it. But man, Smiling Phases is early psychedelic traffic at their absolute best. And everything they were going to do after this was going to be very, very different. And the big reason for that is that Dave Mason pulled a Neil Young. And what I mean by that is that Neil Young. Uh, quit Crosby, Stills, and Nash in Buffalo Springsfield like about a billion times. Uh, Mason quit traffic nearly as many times, maybe more. Uh, he had a habit of, of leaving, coming back, 
leaving and coming back and leaving again. And uh, maybe that's because he, at the end of the day, he was always more fundamentally a solo artist, not a songwriting collaborator the way that Winwood Capaldi and Wood were. Um, but what happens is that Mason leaves traffic right after their first album is released. And so now they're a trio. Uh, they go tour America and Britain, and it's mildly successful. And then for whatever reason, when they get together to record the second album, which ends up coming out in late 1968 and is just called Traffic, uh, Mason's already released a, his own solo single. It's okay. It's called Just For You. It's actually on a later Traffic album. The reason being is that all the members of Traffic played on it. But they invite Mason back and said, all right, come back. And he kind of takes over the band, which well, is they, sort of funny. They needed songs, right? They, they, they didn't have enough material, which is one of the reasons right. they invited him back. And so he ends up doing half, half the, the songs, songs on Traffic. And, and Jeff, can I interrupt for a sec? Because you made absolutely. this wonderful transition to the next album, but I had two things to say about one more Darn thing it. to say about the previous one. Yeah. Uh, first of all, with Smiling Faces is another... Um, uh, a song that I never knew that Traffic did until the 90s. I got into it because Blood, Sweat, and Tears did it in when I was in high school. Uh, and so I always associate it with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who have a really nice version of it. And then I was just going to say how uh, Capaldi remembers writing uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy, um, which was he was in that cottage you were telling us about. Um, and he had just come down off an LSD trip. Um, at, and he was sketching pictures while he was watching a log fire and out of his subconscious came the image of a man hanging uh, on a puppet strings wearing a spiked hat with the words dear mr fantasy play us a tune something to make us all happy scrawled under him and he wrote and he and he and he drew this out and then wood found the capaldi sketch set a baseline to it and then they wrote the song well, that's a pretty great, pretty grim way, in fact, <laughs> uh, for a classic song to emerge. Uh, but the second Traffic album, where Mason returns to the fold, is it's it's such a split personality. Some of this stuff I absolutely love. Some of this stuff I find to be kind of like tedious. Um, but the, the the reason it's so strange is that Mason is now no longer writing psychedelic songs. Mm -hmm. Mason has taken a big. I guess left turn, more of a right turn, frankly, uh, into sort of folk and you know, you know, sort of sing along countryish, more you know, um, down home style music than and you know, you know, utterly simple or you know, like weird psychedelic fantasias. So the song he writes half the music on this record, and the album opens with, you know, here's a little song you can all join in, which is kind of like sort of Dave Mason's lyrical vision throughout his entire career totally chris gow always made fun of him for this he's like you know you write songs that are called you can all join in and they'll call just a song you know it's just like, like what what's what's your point here
But he also writes uh, the best song on this record. And the, 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 the other three, you know, Winwold, Capaldi, and Wood, come up with some really great psychedelic, very spooky, misty stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's everyone going to remember from Traffic? They're going to remember feeling all right. They're going to remember it because, probably because they know the Joe Cocker version. This is kind of like where I, I argue, just as everybody knows Joe Cocker's version of With a Little Help from My Friends, the Beatles version is so much better, in my opinion. Well, I like Joe Cocker's version of that, and I like Joe Cocker's version of Feeling All Right. But let me tell you, there's nothing for me that beats that sort of ramshackle shuffle of Dave Mason singing hoarsely at the beginning of that song. Like, you know, it's almost like he, he woke up with, you know, <clears throat> you know, he lost his voice after smoking a pack of cigarettes the night before. So it was like, and then all of a sudden it just sort of all falls together as a song. And he asks you that question, are you feeling all right? I'm not feeling too good myself. And it's, uh, it's the, it's the, the polar opposite of the stuff that you heard on Mr. Fantasy, which was like psychedelic 1967 summer of love rock. Now it's, it prefigures the band and it prefigures, you know, like, the return to roots music that you were going to see throughout the rest of the decade. Seems I've got to have a change of scene. Cause every night I have the strangest dream. Prison by the way it could be. Left here on my own, or so it seems. I've got to leave before I start to scream. Someone's locked the door and took the key You're feeling all right I'm not feeling too good myself Well, you're feeling all right I'm not feeling too good myself Well, I... uh came to this album preparing for this show because as we've already established i only knew about this early stuff um from the smiling phases anthology so there's a bunch of stuff on here that i didn't know but mostly it's the stuff you didn't really want to know um uh for, but for example forty thousand headmen which is also called roman through the gloaman with forty thousand <laughs> headmen um that's a, a song i knew from uh blood sweat and tears uh, again in the 70s but i will i went back and listened to the blood sweat and tears and unlike all the other covers by blood sweat and tears or by three dog night this one was really awful this blood sweat and tears i didn't remember he did it a slow down kind of melancholy version of it which then you read then you watch, listen to the original and it and it and it absolutely uh, uh blows you away <laughs> Um, I obviously um, uh, like Pearly Queen a lot. That's to me, that's vintage um, uh, traffic. 
But I, I, I think that um, um, Vagabond Bird, Virgin uh, is a song that may be my favorite song on this track. And again, it's by Capaldi and Mason uh, together. Well, no, no, no. I thought it was just Mason. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's what, I, it's what the it's what the uh, lyric credit, at least the credits, uh, go to both of them. I, um, I, might, I might buy it because it's a little different from the more folky stuff. I right, think it's a great song though. What were you going to say though? I well, I just just this line. I mean, I think the line, you know, when somebody said, "Let me take you to bed," and then it, and then it hits into the you know the chorus that they do. It is uh, um, it's a great song. It's just a truly great song. Scott, I'm. Uh... Uh, Mason stuff is better here, and um, "Crying to Be Heard" is one that he wrote that I like a lot. Later on in the album, it has that folkish melody, but then gets a this heavier chorus, and uh, and as it gets to the final uh, charge, there's a really big drum sound. It's a clever arrangement, and it's the you know it's this uh, the open is very soft, very very subdued sax open, and then. Then the music breaks through. Somebody's crying to be heard is how the song begins with this powerful crash. Uh, so I like that a lot. Jeff talked a lot about Feeling All Right, which is, of course, a fantastic track. I actually, I disagree with Jeff. I like Joe Cocker's version of With a Little Help Better, but I agree with him here in that the Feeling All Right from Traffic is superior to the Joe Cocker version. There's a way in which it, it starts so uh, ramshackle, which is, I think, a word that Jeff used, but it starts starts so, so much like that, but by the end, it becomes this great jam, this great sing-along. Huge Everyone's, groove, just a huge yeah, groove. Everybody's yeah. on the same page by the end. It's a great progression from start it's to like, It's like a song where you can hear everybody sort of just like slowly getting on the same page. Yes. And yes. so by the end, everybody's in locked in with one another. And and I don't know if that was like take 25 or something like that, <laughs> but it feels so organic like it was take one. You're feeling all right. I'm not feeling too good myself. Well, you're feeling all right. I'm not feeling too good myself. One I'll mention, which uh, which uh, Randy already mentioned, Pearly Queen is probably my favorite song on the album, outside of Feeling All Right, perhaps. That's a Capaldi Winwood song. It has this deep bluesy riff, this stomping tempo, and that's another one to to Jeff's point, where you hear this electric lead guitar, and um, and yeah, that that's that's Steve Winwood. He's just super talented. There's a couple of times in my notes through uh, uh, through preparing where it just becomes, oh yeah, he can play guitar too. He can do it really well. He's really an extremely talented musician. You hear that very clearly on Like Pearly Queen. I bought a secret suit from a colored queen She could drink more wine than I'd ever seen We had some gypsy blood going through 
That guitar riff, that guitar riff, uh, sounds to me like a Hendrix riff. And uh, I know that when you know Hendrix played in the UK, lots of the British bands went to hear him play. Uh, I don't know specifically whether these guys did, but the Beatles did, and other guys that went to listen and play. And we don't, we forget about the crossover between a, a band, a, a, a performer like Hendrix, who we would think of as more this American icon. Um, uh, the crossover between the Brits and the UK. I mean, the, the Beatles talk about how the Beach Boys, they were in competition with the Beach Boys and vice versa. Hendrix actually played a version of Sgt. Pepper's the day after it was released in the U.S. So it's released in the U.S., everybody's playing it, and the next day Hendrix goes on, sta- on stage and does Sgt. Pepper's. So they were listening to each other, and I think that this shows that uh, Steve Winwood was listening to Hendrix. Well, not only that, but I mean, Hendrix was, a, we, we talked about this when we did our Hendrix uh, episode with Jane Coaston. I mean, Hendrix, the, the paradox of him is that, you know, as, as the box set goes, he's a West Coast Seattle boy, but he had to go to U- the United Kingdom to make his fame. He was a British artist before he was an American artist. So he was known by the UK rock scene as early as late 66. Uh, he didn't break into the American consciousness until, I guess, mid-67 when he played Monterey. Um, and so all of these guys knew him. And this is actually something I was looking for a great reason to mention, but now I am going to. One of the things that needs to be understood about <clears throat> the scene surrounding not only traffic, but the entire UK rock scene of this era is that these guys, Mason and Winwood in particular, were sociable. I mean, in the sense that they hung out with all the other musicians around there. They were friends. They, you know, they were well liked. They got along with people. They would always do favors for them. You know, play on your record, and then later on, somewhere down the line, you play on mine. Three quarters of traffic appears on Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland in 1968. All right, you, you like along the Watchtower, all on the Watchtower, the Dylan cover. Well, guess who you have to thank for that? That's Dave Mason. OK, Dave Mason took Jimi Hendrix to like, his flat, you know, in London in like late 67. He had a pre-release copy of John Wesley Harding and he put this on. He said, hey, you know, Jimmy, listen to this song. I think this, this could be good for you. Jimmy listened to it and he said, mm, well, I do believe it could. <laughs> so <laughs> what happens? They go into the studio to record it. And, you know, that great opening riff, you know, who's playing that? It's not Jimi Hendrix. It's Dave Mason on 12-string acoustic guitar. There must be some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief there's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Plowman dig my earth None will level on 
Uh, Steve Winwood on Voodoo Child, the big long blues jam, the 14-minute one. That's Steve Winwood on organ. Chris Wood, uh, you know, on 1983, a merman I should turn to be. He's the one playing all those great little flutes and, you know, you know drifty woodwinds and reeds. Um, that's Chris Wood. These guys got around. And when they go around later on to record their solo albums, well, it, you know, you'll be shocked at the people who show up to play with them. It's like a who's who of who was important in not only America, in the United Kingdom, but also later on in the American music scenes. Uh, these guys showed up everywhere. And it's, it's, it's funny because you, you end up realizing that their own vision for their own music was one thing, but their ability to sort of put themselves you know, into the visions of other people's music was also sympathetic enough that everybody wanted them on their stuff. last thing I want to say about the, the traffic and self-titled album before I leave is there's one song on here that is really a pure Winwood song, musically. Uh, it's a song called No Time to Live that I love. Um, Capaldi wrote the lyrics, but it, it, this is sort of the embodiment of what you know that half of the album is about. These are these dark, smoky, dreamy jam kind of songs. Uh, they, they feel like you're walking through like a, a misty forest in the early morning. And there's fog everywhere. Um, you know, when Linwood sings the lyrics, you know, as time begins to turn itself upon me and the days are growing very short, uh, you hear the organ in the background and it's just so haunting. It's a wonderful tune, probably the least discussed one on the album. But I think it's actually for, you know, as opposed to the Dave Mason songs, I think it's the best of the Winwood songs. I think it's better than Pearly Queen or 40,000 Headmen, in my opinion. As time begins to burn itself upon me. The days are growing very short People try the hardest To reject me But in a way Their conscience won't be cold Beaches and in Washington, yeah. 
course, what happens right after traffic is released? Well, Dave Mason decides, I'm going to quit again. Adios. <laughs> Bye-bye. Um, and uh, because, you know, that's that's the way Mason operates. Uh, and traffic isn't quite done yet. They release a farewell single. And, boy, this is actually, as far as farewell singles go, this is about as good a double A side, in my opinion, as Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. Totally different kind of a vibe. But uh, yeah, yeah, you don't want to explore the lyrics for too much meaning. But God, I love Medicated Goo and its B-side Shanghai Noodle Factory. What do you guys think of these songs? I love them both. Um, I think they're paradigmatic traffic songs. I think Medicated Goo was going to make it into my top five and it just got bumped at the last minute. That's how much I like it. Um, and uh, although I, I, I and I. I, I think I probably heard Medicated Goo because I didn't know this album on the on the Welcome to the Canteen uh, live version of the album. Um, and so but I, I just also want to say that I thought the first song, which just for you, which I hadn't ever heard before, um, uh, sounds a lot to me like uh, it's very moody bluesy um, with the flute and the vocals could have been on Days of Future Past. I love the blues. I love the moody blues, the moodies, I should say. Um, uh, and so that, I thought that was a kind of a little bit of a surprising song. That's a Dave Mason solo single, uh, but the reason it was included on Last Exit, which is the album we're talking about, it was sort of a Franken album assembled from bits and pieces. You know, there's uh, some live songs from a, you know, a show at the Fillmore, and then there's these singles and B-sides. Uh, that was a Dave Mason single that was included because, as it so happens, everybody else in Traffic played on it in the backing. Uh, and it is a very good song, but it's very, very kind of classically Mason, and it is the sound you were going to hear from him going forward and particularly on his first solo record, which we'll get to later, but I think it's an amazing record. Um, Scott? Yeah, this Last Exit uh, album, January 69, and again, it's, it's just Island Records trying to make sure they sell a few more records while uh, the getting is good. So they're putting together, it's, it's, it's not really an album statement, right? There's, there's, uh, as Jeff mentioned, the two A-side tracks and a couple of big long live tracks on, on side two. But those two tracks, uh, I know Jeff loves Shanghai Noodle Factory, but I will uh, will bat. Not that he doesn't like medicated goo, but that I like medicated goo a lot. It, and uh, Randy talks about how he came to know about so many traffic songs. I uh, knew about medicated goo or found out about it because, um, as I've mentioned a few times with different songs, it's a song the Black Crows decided to cover during their live shows. That's the first place that I heard medicated goo. That's a Jimmy Miller, Steve Winwood co-write. Uh, Miller has an ear for things, and that. His contributions to the song are really fantastic. Those really quick fire lyrics from Steve Winwood. Love the, you know, the ooh, ooh, ain't it good for you? Uh, and Capaldi's playing these triplets on his drum kit during the chorus, which is which are awesome. Uh, Medicated Goo is one of my favorite traffic songs. It's just a great, great jam. 
I think you want to drop that little bit into the show. That's my suggestion. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, yeah, you know, you can always just hear it in your mind when you know what. There goes the clip. Shanghai Noodle Factory. I'm gonna just you know reveal it right now. This might be my single favorite traffic song of all time, and I just love the reunion era material as well. But there's something about this. I don't know who wrote the lyrics. the 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 obvious assumption is that it would be Capaldi, but there's like five people credited on this thing. It's like the entire band is there, and then Jimmy Miller gets a songwriting credit. I don't know why. Maybe they were throwing him a tip or something like that. And then there's some random dude I've never even heard of, uh, but the song almost feels like uh, Steve Winwood singing it. When he sings it, he almost personalizes it. You know, he says, "You know, I had to make a break. You know, I had to soon. I had to wake up feeling stronger on you know, my island of dreams with impossible schemes." Um, just the way he saw his his voice just wails out as if to escape what from what had become kind of a feeling of being in shackled you know by a band dynamic that, that wasn't working and it was time to move on and time to change but boy the music on that is also just so hard to beat it's so snappy you know the like the bump and then the acoustic air goes do 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 bump bump do 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 bump bump it's both folk and funk and i don't know how you get to combine those two things simultaneously and get away with it but a song with the ridiculous name of shanghai noodle factory somehow manages to do it End of traffic. 
or so forever. We the end to this episode. The end. Uh, yep. Thanks for joining us on Political Beats. We will see you <laughs> next week. Um, no, um, what happens next, of course. And we cannot, even though this is nominally a traffic episode, we're really talking about the guiding through line, which is Steve Winwood. And uh, you just can't move on without talking about what happens next, which is one of the two, only two, in my opinion, truly great and worthy supergroups of all time. And one of them is Derek and the Dominoes, who will be showing up later on on Dave Mason's solo album and uh, you know collaborating with Steve Winwood in, in many various forms in the future. Uh, but the other the other truly worthy supergroup, of course, is Blind Faith. sick of the whole scene he listened to too much music from big pink um steve winwood had left traffic and they got rick gretch uh from family and uh and then ginger baker being ginger baker had somehow managed to elbow his way into the conversation i think against clapton's will but clapton was just sort of like so passive that he didn't want to say no he was just like all right fine whatever we need a drummer anyway <laughs> this is an album that when it was first released was greeted with giant shrugs and was treated as being kind of a disappointment oh we expected more we expected better and i will grant that it has one of the most offensive album covers of all time <laughs> the original album cover will not be featured on our no. national review no. page of political beats because it's it's horrible i mean i'm sure most of the people listening know it's like a prepubescent girl topless you know she's like 14 years old 13 years old and she's holding like this giant phallic airplane it's terrible um but the music within this album is fantastic and it's almost entirely driven by winwood he writes almost all of this he sings all the songs and he writes most of them and even the one that he doesn't write presence of the lord which is a clapton song and i think it's actually one of like the three or four greatest songs eric clapton would ever write um he makes his own i i, I really love this uh, predictably, the only thing I don't like is the stupid Ginger Baker drum feature <laughs> at the end. 14 minutes. It's but it's Ginger nice Baker's because it's song. last, so you just stop before it starts. That's exactly right. <laughs> you, stop, you stop at, like, you know, I had to cry today, and you're fine. You know, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, uh, and I, and the, the name of the song is Do What You Like, and what I like to do is stop the music at that point. Yes! That's what I like to do. Thank you, Randy. I love Blind Faith. I don't understand why it is, you know, was ever kind of slashed upon, maybe because of that last 14-minute self-indulgent mess. But, man, every other song on this album is, I think, you know, truly great. And it, it they actually 
you know, as far as super groups go, these guys play fantastically together. It's a great uh, album. And, you know, for, for a band that essentially was like lived for a few months, they were already falling apart. Clapton was restless and looking for an exit when they were touring in the middle of 1969 as the album was being released. But again, credit, I think, in part to Jimmy Miller, uh, who produced and, and helped develop this material and, and probably focused it a bit, you know, not just some, some loose jams, but actually turning things into to, to true songs. And yes, everything except that last song is outstanding. This is a great, great album. The opening had to cry today where, where Winwood is at his most anguished uh, on vocals and great big bluesy riffs from, from Eric Clapton. Um, I think, as Jeff mentioned, Jeff and I are just dead on when we when we anytime we discuss Eric Clapton because <laughs> the last uh, exclusive content episode we agreed Bell Bottom Blues was the highlight of Derek and the Dominoes and yeah, Presence of the Lord is is you know one of the top three, top five songs Clapton ever wrote, and it's here with Wimbledon on vocals. It's just an amazing song. Uh, you well, know, we don't we'll never get to talk about this. I predict because I don't know if we'll ever do a Clapton episode. I want to point out. That that lyric is genuinely affected. Mm-hmm. You know, when he when he says like, "I finally found a way to live in the presence of the Lord." You know, like wow, like you know, that's a spiritual. Right. I didn't think oh, that Eric yeah. Clapton was going to be capable of writing a song like that. It's a, it's a gospel solely kind of arrangement. There's you know the the American South music just pulses through in a lot of places, especially on Presence of the Lord. That, that and then wah-wah. finally at the end when, when Clapton finally delivers the guitar yes. solo that you've been waiting for for like the first three minutes, and then boom, and then just fires away, and it's like it actually lives up to the billing. best thing on the record which is saying a lot because there's a lot of great stuff i have one note on can't find my way home which is perhaps the, that's the, the best song. thing on the record i would say well I, I don't like it as much as presence of the lord but i can't listen to it the same way anymore because at some point and I, I i don't know i don't know where it came from at some point someone pointed out how sort of loud and out of place those ride cymbal hits are from ginger baker throughout like it's just going around kind of meandering <laughs> and then 
and I can't <laughs> listen anymore without laughing when I hear those ride cymbal hits from Ginger Baker. I can't do it. It's just no, impossible. No, Scott, did you just ruin this song for me? This is one of my favorite songs. <laughs> yeah, it, this is going to be one of my top five songs, Scott. Well, you could have kept that information. And now you'll never now. listen to it again the same way. That's, that's oh, what I'm here thank, for. Thank you for ruining it. Randy, talk to us about that song. Tell me why you like it as much as I Well, I, first of all, the album, it, there are certain albums that just are albums. Then you have to read the whole album as a whole, except for the last we've established, except for the last part of the last song. Uh, so you there's I mean, and I think that uh, we're going to say the same thing about Alone Together by Dave Mason. There's just certain albums that um, and this is why I used to I, I used to refer to this era as album rock. Um, because the albums as a whole were coherent. And that's the reason why you couldn't find like five songs off this album, because all five songs are really primo and one go from, from one uh, uh, to the other, starting with Had to Cry Today, Can't Find My Way uh, Home, uh, again, a phenomenal song. It sounds a lot more like Traffic, frankly, than like Blind Faith. It's just, it's like a pure Traffic song. I did not realize this until uh, prepping for the show, but it was a Buddy Holly song. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I decided, well, through the miracle of Spotify, I'm going to listen to what Buddy Holly did. And it was really weird because Buddy Holly sang it as like a folk song. It was with, with just an acoustic guitar and a cymbal. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful song. I mean, it is the same song, but this song, well, all right. I, I, this, this is a song that when I was teaching uh, during COVID, um, and I would play bumper music. I would play music during our breaks, our COVID breaks. <laughs> um, um, I really love playing this song for my students uh, because I thought that I wanted them to feel like we're all right. Well, all right. Um, anyway, it's a it's a fantastic record. Uh, it's a fantastic album. I urge everybody who hasn't heard Blind Faith to put it on. You'll be instantly smitten with the album as a whole. One song we haven't mentioned already is one that I really also love, which is Sea of Joy. Absolutely. 
fantastic violin interlude by Rick Gretsch, uh, you know, who otherwise isn't very present on the album, but that's his 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 moment to shine. Um, I just, you know, I love it. You know, it, it's it, it's almost the way Winwood sings on that and I had to cry today. There's a weird despair in his voice. It almost mm, seems yeah, like, you know, yeah. he's very sad and upset. You know, we sing Sea of Joy. There's there's, there's no joy in that, right? You know, and then you have that very sort of lilting interlude while on the violin. Um, I never understood why people didn't like this album in its day. I heard it. I finally bought it. I bought it with the ugly cover and all. I turned the cover upside down. I just listened to the music, and the music stands up so well. It, did, course, make, it, it did make number one in both it, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. I, I, with that cover. I can't even believe that that. That they album cover was they had the a number one. They had a different album cover for the U.S. release. Oh, they did. You're right. They had the alternate one, which we actually might. They had a picture use. of a band, a picture of the band on it. Right. I think that's the one we will use on the, the web page <laughs> when we finally put this up. Um, and, but Blind Faith couldn't last, right? Clapton was already very leery about the idea of being in a super group. Of course, so what does he do? He goes and forms another super group. That's Clapton for you. Because um, he's not confident of being a solo artist yet. And the funny thing is, is that neither was Steve Winwood. He didn't he didn't feel like he was ready to strike out on his own. He, he, he always felt like he worked better with collaborators, with teammates. And of course, what better teammate is that than the rest of the band traffic? So what happened is that he actually started to find, he tried to record his first solo album. It was going to be called Mad Shadows, uh, which is recorded by famous rock and roll madman Guy Stevens. Guy Stevens, producer from Mata Hoople, produced London Calling by The Clash. Um, I can't imagine Steve Woodenwood and Guy Stevens working together well, although the two songs that did make it onto the next record sound great, frankly. Uh, but it wasn't a, a collaboration that was meant to be. So what did he do? He, he called up Jim Capaldi and Chris Wood and he said, okay, listen, let's just get the band back together again. And they put together an album that since it's Capaldi and Wood with Steve Winwood, they said, well, we're traffic now, clearly. And this is a new kind of traffic, uh, but a beautiful kind of traffic. This is traffic phase two, the beginning of uh, – the career, the point in their career where they actually started having major commercial success in the United States, um, it's an album called John Barleycorn Must Die. And it is sort of effortless fusion. It has rock, soul, funk, Fairport convention like traditional folk. Um, it has, I think, not a single song on it, not a single one that I consider weak or flawed. And the irony is, is I don't know if any one of the songs is going to make it into my top five at the end, precisely because it's so even that it's just an album that has to be heard as a whole. Like, I can't say to myself, oh, well, you know, John Barleycorn is a better song than Stranger to Himself or is a better song than Empty Pages or Freedom Rider. I just think the whole thing flows as an unabrogatable whole. And uh, this is, for many people, the peak of not only Traffic's career, but Winwood's career as well. And, and although I might disagree, I certainly can't fault you for thinking so. Well, I thought this was uh, this was an amazing album. This was my intro to Traffic when I was in college. This would be my first year of college. Um, and I totally agree with just about, uh, with, not just about, with absolutely everything that Jeff just said. Um, it is a, co and I was getting to this with the last Blind Faith album. This is a coherent whole. 
you can't separate any of these songs. It's like one continuous song. It's like at the end of the Beatles Abbey Road uh, um, album. Or I'm sorry, what yeah, was the album it. where they they did all the sequence? The it's sequ- Abbey Road. The, Abbey Road, right. Yep. So they had the end where all those songs went together. All these songs just go together. It's one song. In fact, that's how I'm going to cheat with my top five. I'll okay. give it away now. It's going to be everything on John Barleycorn plus five more. Um, that's going to be my top five because um, every song works, uh, include, start, starting with this um, uh, opening instrumental, uh, Glad, uh, which once you hear it, I think you'll all feel like you've heard it before because I'm sure it's been the background of a of a bunch of different things. Yeah, uh, this song plays on a ton of radio beds. I've heard it. I do think Stranger to Himself is one of the best songs uh, on the album, even though it's one of the lesser songs, you would think. So it all holds up. It's, it is a coherent um, uh, album that must be heard uh, from beginning to end. And once again, I couldn't single out a single song to make a top five because all songs are equal on this. It's one of the very few albums uh, I think we can say this about. Stranger to Himself sounds to me like uh, Midnight Rider from the Almonds, that rolling uh, piano riff. And they were released the same year, and I didn't even bother to check which one was first. doesn't matter that much, but it has that similar feel. It's a good yeah. feel. It's a compliment. Uh, it, it's a great little uh, sort, of, uh, sort, of, sort of riff that, that plays out on the piano there. Uh, this is probably my favorite Traffic album. One of the things that surprised me as I was going through was how much commercial success Traffic had in the U.S. This was... A really popular band. Uh, this album went to number five. They had a, a handful of other albums that I, that I believe went into the top ten. And they were moving units in the Once early upon a time, 70s. America liked weird music. Yeah, man. and that time this is when this was when FM radio was yeah. big. You yeah. guys have to. I don't know if you remember the tail end of this, but in high school when uh, FM started, um, uh, and I know I was I worked as an electronic salesman for Allied Radio in high school, and I got a huge big stereo with the huge wooden speakers and a tuner and i remember listening to it in the dark at night when all the lights all the green and red and yellow lights on my tuner (laughs) would light up and you would listen to fm radio and you would hear tracks like this this is and then as they say this uh fm radio djs love 13 minute tracks because they could get a smoke they could have a snack uh this was this was a boon to them and this is what you would listen to i listened to credence clear i remember listening to credence um in the dark of my of my room, my home, my the room I grew up in. All eleven um, minutes if I heard it through the grapevine, ex- right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's a whole it's a whole thing or a thing uh, that we've lost uh, uh, if you haven't lived through it. And that is when FM came on, it was like magical, uh, and it was a whole different world of music. And it was the music, and I think traffic was made for FM radio. Well, actually, I actually believe that you're correct about that, and I think that comes into real play 
on the next album, but we'll get to that later. Scott, you know, I, I, I have a bunch of things I could say and just bore everyone with, but finish what you were going to say first. Yeah, but uh, I think my two favorites are Glad, uh, the lead-off instrumental, Seven Minutes, uh, that Randy had already mentioned. That's a, a great song. The wah-wah pedal, the sax solo, uh, the, the piano break about halfway through. There's a number of tempo changes. I love the piano where it's kind of right hand versus left hand, back and forth. Uh, it's really neat. And then Empty Pages has this jazz funk groove. It's a wonderful tempo. I love Capaldi's work on the hi-hat during the verses. And then the electric piano. Uh, on the end section, uh, which is tied in with the Hammond. So you have electric piano and Hammond, and now now Winwood's already playing with some of the layering uh, of these uh, of these mixes or layering of, of instruments that he'd get into. Certainly in a solo career, that's starting to happen here as well as the band is stretching out and playing longer jams and getting close to sort of a progressive jazz rock feel. Yeah, there's not a song here I dislike. It really is solid the entire way through. Um, and, and for for what should have been a Winwood solo album, I suppose he made the right decision to bring back some friends and just make it a traffic affair. I have talked far too many times in the past on this show about how much of a Fairport Convention fanatic I am. And this is strange because it's a band that most Americans have never even heard of, much less care about. Um, they were the inventors of British folk rock, which is distinct from American folk rock in the sense that American folk rock is sort of, you know, think of the birds, you know, the turtles and such. Uh, British folk rock took basically from, you know, British traditional ballads, the ones that date back all the way to like, you know, the 1300s, 15th century and thereabouts. And, you know, sort of the rural England and then made them modern, electrified them or simply modernized them. Um, and, uh, the reason I mention all of this is that John Barleycorn must die. The song uh, is a song that is a perfect sort of, I guess, you know, it's a culmination of that entire trend that had been going on with Fairport doing stuff like on Half Breaking and Legion Leaf and then, you know, Steel Eye Span and Pentangle. Uh, and then out of nowhere on an album that's otherwise dominated by sort of much more funky and soul and R&B stuff or sort of progressive moves then here's this purely acoustic ballad about you know some men who came out of the west and decided that john barleycorn must die and i remember when i first heard this i was like what a grim tale of murder and 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 torture they're gonna chop his head off they're gonna crush him who is this poor guy and what the hell did he do to them and then i I looked it up and then i realized this is a song about like you know alcohol uh, that you know like basically you know the barleycorn is used to like you know 
ferment to make beer. <laughs> so like John Barleycorn must die is like basically a proto prohibitionist song. Um, and you never go that unless you knew, uh, you know, that that was its origin and what it was about, but they sing it with such stern purpose and with such sort of, you know, kind of, sort of quiet terror and terrifying fury that by the end of it, you know, when he says that, like, you know, John Barleycorn lives on, like, you know, we kill them, but you can't kill them. Uh, only there do you get a hint as to what the real meaning of the song is. And it's just, just, to my mind, just sort of classic British folk rock. It actually does better than Fairport Convention would have done during that era. And that's a huge compliment to me because I don't really think you can top, you know, Fairport Convention's take on folk rock. I love that song. And again, and as I said, you were going to say. Remember the tinker, he can't mend kettle or pots without a little barley corn. Without a little barley corn, exactly. He's got to have a little nip uh, to, to make him uh, able to do his work. Um, God, it's such a great folk song, and it's modernized so perfectly by them. And it's it's such a left turn because Traffic really didn't, like, you know, until you get into, like, When the Eagle Flies. There's some songs on there that have a bit of an acoustic tinge to them. Uh, but, man, uh, this is singular for them, you know, either in their earlier career or you know in their later career or in steve winwood's career this is a unique song in their discography and that's why i love it so much But again, there's nothing on this this album that's bad. Freedom Rider, which nobody's really talked about too much. Boy, I love the sort of weird, somber turn of the saxophone that just right when it <laughs> opens, you know, it gets all dark and gloomy. Traffic loved to be gloomy. You know, Every Mother's Son is a song that no one talks about. It's never on any of these compilations, but it's just a beautiful ballad to wind out the album. It's just a really underappreciated record. It was big at its time, and it's one of those records that people just don't talk about anymore because nobody talks about Traffic or nobody talks about Winwood. But my God, it holds up so well. The funny thing is, is that I played it so much that I got tired of it. And yeah. then you can't, it's, when you get tired of a, of album, even like 20 years later, you can't make yourself go back. You know you like the album, but you can't make yourself play it again. So I was really kind of grateful for this podcast um uh that it actually got me to listen to this again even though i loved it so much that i stopped listening to it you overloved it and then you come back 20 years later and you realize wait a second that's why i loved it the first time yeah if only it were 20 years jeff that's all i can say <laughs> yeah uh, well i was trying not to mark you out as an old randy but you know if you want to do it to yourself that's fine with me okay randy and i know you're going to be with me on this one as well 
Talk about an album that nobody speaks of these days that deserves to be remembered far more fondly than it is, is an album that came out the exact same month as this by former bandmate of Traffic, soon to rejoin them, in fact, for their live upcoming tour. And that, of course, is Dave Mason's debut solo album. It took him a while to get it together, but when he finally did, with his first solo record, his best by far, uh, he did it in spades with a record that's known as Alone Together. Uh, this is one of those records that's just, unless you're like, you know, one of these weird 60s, 70s rock dorks like me, maybe like Randy for that matter, um, you don't know about. But my God, you should know about this record. It is fantastic pop rock music from start to finish, just like John Barleycorn. I don't think there's a weak moment on it. I think it's absolutely a pure record. And I just advise anyone to go to Wikipedia like I did just the other day when I was like listening to it again. And look at the credits on this album. Every single person playing on it is somebody that you have heard of, <laughs> if you know anything about this. Yeah. Not only is Jim Capaldi on drums, guess who the, there are four drummers on this album. And every one of those four people is just like a legend. Jim Capaldi of Traffic plays drums. Johnny Barbata of the Turtles and of Crosby, Stills, and Nash plays drums. Jim Gordon of Derek and the Dominoes plays drums. Jim Keltner of every single yes. session, yes. you know, from, from every of the ex-Beatles. He played on Lennon stuff, Harrison stuff, Ringo stuff. He played on a billion other things. He plays drums. The, the, he got the producer of the band, John Simon, to play bass on the album for some reason. Everybody, he called in every favor that he had. He would have called in Jimmy to play on it, but unfortunately, Jimmy had died. And I'm sure Jimmy would have been glad to. Uh, Dave Mason got every one of his friends to play on this record. And the funny thing is, it doesn't sound like a superstar jam session. It just sounds like an album of beautifully written pop songs. Absolutely. Uh, this was a song I did listen to a lot in college. It came out the year I started uh, college, and it was a dorm song uh, um, album for me. Um, you, Jeff, I'm sure you you know this, but uh, it was one of those song that those albums that was produced on multicolored vinyl. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of got a pink with a lot of other colors uh, mixed in with it. Very psychedelic, uh, typical Dave Mason. Although this album is not psychedelic at all. Um, uh, it's, uh, just rock, uh, a little folksy cause it's got a lot of acoustic. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, 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 it is an amazing album. Um, I, it, 
I, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record on this record show. And that is it's another whole album where you go from one song to the other. It's hard to uh, in my mind to keep them straight because it's like one continuous album of going from one. It would be like a, seeing a concert and you just go from one uh, song to the other song. And um, I, it's again hard. I couldn't single out one or two that I think are better because they're all just fantastic. Um, I do uh, want to note uh, that I only discovered recently that Dave Mason is a political conservative um, and or libertarian. I'm not sure which stripe of right of center he is. Uh, I think it's appropriate to note this on um, the Political Beats uh, podcast. Um, he was uh, I, I discovered this. I mean, I through uh, a friend of mine who is a uh, writer in Hollywood um, who went to a Friends of Abe Gala <laughs> dinner. Um, uh, which was a right of center gathering of people who work in, in the industry in Hollywood. And Dave Mason was the featured performer. Um, and then it turns out, so he played there because he was sort of uh, akin uh, to, uh, to the others who were there. And so I think uh, that needs to be you know, mentioned in passing. I did get to see him live. Um, uh, this is before I knew this. I got to see him live at the Rams Head uh, in Annapolis, and he was terrific as a single solo artists playing these songs together so um again go to spotify get this album uh download it making sure it's available to you who don't have to stream it um and then listen to it from beginning to end and it will become your favorite album i can definitely single out one song from this album as my favorite and that's you know i don't it, it, i don't know how it fits at the end of the show but i love it uh it's called shouldn't have took more than you gave it's the longest song on the, well it's not the longest song on the album i think the last one's the longer but God, it's yeah. just such a beautiful riff and a beautiful lyric. The title says it all. You know, you shouldn't have took more than you gave back. Um, uh, his, you know, genius for melody is very underrated. And I guess you know he had this very unfortunate solo career, which was just sabotaged by his record label. Which is why we're not going to talk about a lot of the other stuff after it. Like he got into a war with his label immediately after the release of this album, and then he like you absconded with the studio tape so they just started releasing what it was they had with like live recordings as well he didn't get around to recording a follow-up until three years later it was just a big mess you know you kind of wonder what would have happened if mason it was obviously a very willful fellow you know that's probably why he kept on quitting you know traffic <laughs> joining them and quitting them over and over again but you kind of wonder what would have happened with his solo career if he hadn't had all these weird hiccups and stammers Of course, well, actually, one of the things that he does after he, he splits with his label is, he says, you know what? 
time to rejoin traffic again. So that's what they do. Of course, he's, he's, he has legal disputes with uh, his record label at the time. So the name of the Traffic Live album that he plays on is just called Welcome to the Canteen, and it's credited to the individual performers. It's not allowed to be credited to traffic because I think you know, there would be lawsuits. But, uh, you know, this is one of those, those, those records that people don't talk about much. I think it's a lot of fun. It, it, it's poorly recorded in the sense that it, it's not like a hi-fi live recording. It's a soundboard, you know, and it's mixed, but like sometimes the vocals are distant. But this is the one where Randy was talking earlier about like, you know, you want to hear a really long live version of Give Me Some Love, and it's like nine minutes. <laughs> They've got that. They got Dave performing t- two of his best songs from the album, which you know, shouldn't have took more than he gave. And also uh, Sad and Deep as You. Both are great. You got Medicated Goo. Um, this is a really kind of a great forgotten live album. Scott hates live albums. It's his biggest mm-hmm. failing as a co-host. You know, you, Scott, the, the worst thing about you is that you don't like live records as much as I do. You but know, that's the worst so, thing you can I, say. You know, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I, exactly. I love live albums. And be, well, before I forget to say it, let me highly recommend the uh, Madison Square Gardens live album of the uh, Clapton and um, uh, Winwood tour, which I got to see in Las Vegas, although the set list was a little different. Uh, they changed the set list as they went over the tour. Um, and and I want to recommend it because it's a fantastic live album. Um, and it's a lot of Blind Faith and Traffic songs and a couple of Winwood songs, too, and a couple of Clapton songs. You got to put away the blues stuff because that doesn't do anything for me. But anyway, it's a, it would be it would be a very decent intro. Uh, to all of this music for anybody that doesn't want to jump into the original albums. It would be a nice intro, and then they could might go back to the original albums from there. But I, I do agree. Um, Welcome to the Canteen was the third Traffic album I owned, um, and so I listened to it a lot. It's a 71. Again, I'm in college. Uh, so I listened to it a lot, and that's where I got exposed to the songs that had been on the earlier Traffic albums, but I hadn't ever known about them, like Medicated Goo, like 40,000 Headmen, which I thought, was a BST, uh, a Blood, Sweat, and Tears um, uh, group, um, and cover. then Dear Mr. and cover. Thank you, and uh, and Dear Mr. Fantasy, uh-huh. which was uh, again a phenomenal song. And so, I'm going to pick up on a thought that Randy talked about when we were discussing John Barleycorn and say that, like, well, you know, he's album rock, right? Album rock radio. I think one of the quintessential albums of like early FM radio has to be the next Studio Traffic album which is the low spark of high-heeled boys. Because here's the funny irony about traffic. Nowadays, what's one traffic song that most people might know? Well, maybe people might know something like Empty Pages or John Barleycorn. But the one most well-known song of their entire career nowadays is 11 and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. And that is the title track, The Low Spark of High Heel Boys. And this is a phenomenon that was only made possible because of FM radio. Because you had the space to just put on a song for 12 minutes long, go out, you know, go run to the bathroom or whatever, but maybe expose the listeners to something a little bit different. This is during uh, an age long before computerized, digitally, algorithmically you know, sorted playlists, you know, to give the people what they want every hour on the hour. You're going to hear some foreigner and some Boston and some, you know, uh, you know, don't, st- don't stop believing by journey. Uh, no, they could play the low spark of high heel boys by traffic. If you see something that looks like a star and it's shooting up out of the ground and your head. 
this is the first of the truly proggy traffic albums. There would be three of them. I think two of those three are great, and they're not the same two that Scott thinks, which is funny. <laughs> um, I love this album. I am almost having difficulty telling you I think it's lesser than John Barleycorn, uh, but it's a very different kind of an album. This is much more ruminative. There's much more lengthy, you know, ex- explorations of music. But you know what the beautiful thing about it is that it's not over long. It's only a 40-minute long record. Mm-hmm. It's just that everything is, you know, sort of, you know, there's only six songs. It's a classic, classic six-song, 40-minute album. You know how it goes. Six songs, 40-minute <laughs> album. But you know what? As I said about Station to Station when we did David Bowie, if you're going to have only six songs in your album, you better make sure that all six songs are good. I think all six songs on this record are pretty damn good. So let me say, and then I'll hand it off to Randy, I, I, I'm not totally sold on this album. I, I think it's a, a great song, a classic song, Low Spark of High Heeled Boys, surrounded by, by and large, good, but not great material. I, I don't know if there's anything really in here, I mean, that, that doesn't have to come close to Low Spark, but I don't know if I really say, man, I really like this song. Hidden Treasures is 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 the leadoff track. I, I kind of like that dreamy, mid-tempo sort of opener with, uh, with some African percussion elements here or there. Both songs sung by Capaldi, uh, "Rock and Roll Stew" and "Light you Up." You don't like Rock and Roll Stew? I think that's a fantastic. Song. I actually, All I prefer right. "Light Up or Leave Me Alone" to, to "Rock and Roll Stew." In fact, I, um, the reason I don't like "Light Up and Leave Me Alone" is it opens with the that's like a little bit too cheesy for me. "Rainmaker," I don't really like. I think it's a little aimless. "Many a Mile of Freedom" is is good. That's another one where I where I I note that. You know, Steve Winwood's a pretty good guitar player. Uh, that solo there that he plays is, is really outstanding. There's a, a Wood plays a flute part in here as well. But um, but but by and large, I, I don't I don't I'm not over the top in my love for the album. The song, yes, Low Spark of High Heeled Boys, but I I kind of feel like it's surrounded by material that's not not quite as good. Good but not great is how I would describe a good portion of of this album. Well, I, I love this album as a student. Um, again, this was the one of the three I had. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to come closer I, uh, and I'm, uh, to Scott on this uh, when, now that he breaks it down, what his view is, because I, I feel the same way about Rainmaker. I'm 
don't care to listen to that song very much. Um, uh, it, it, the opening flute actually reminds me a lot of Jethro Tull and even the melody could have been a tall song, except Winwood's voice could never have been a tall song. So that changes it completely. Many Mile to Freedom. I kind of think it's OK. Rock and Roll Stool. Uh, it's a good song, but it's just not one of my favorite songs. But then here is where um, I probably will disagree with Jeff. I think Light Up and Leave Me Alone is a terrific, is an amazing song. I love that song. It's going to be in my top five. Um, uh, I love how uh, when they come out of the uh, uh, the, the the instrumental solo in the middle and they, they kick back in with the vocal, uh, Winwood goes, oh, and then he starts singing again. There's something about the way he does that. Oh, my bread like it grew on the tree. He's trying to tell me about the birds and the bees. The skirt that you're wearing is way past your knees. It's a lot of old, leave me alone. You're up all night, bitching your mind. Come home in the morning with your latest find. I'm gonna have to lay it to you. Let me bring bring us back to um, uh, and I also, by the way, I really did like Hidden Treasure a lot. I think it would be a contender for a top five song if there weren't so many others to pick from. So I kind of agree with Scott about the last three. And there, since there's only six songs to pick from, um, <laughs> that means the the album is good, but it's not up there with the other ones we were talking about. But how about the title track? Okay, the title track. Now it's a legendary title track. Um, it's got it's said to be Capaldi's most famous lyrics of any of the lyrics he wrote. I'm just going to say some of them um, uh, and then talk a little bit about how they've been interpreted. So the percentage you're paying is too high priced while you're living behind all your means. And the man in the suit has just bought a new car from the profit he's made on your dreams. But today you just read that the man was shot dead by a gun that didn't make any noise. But it wasn't the bullet that laid him to rest it was the low spark of high heel boys. I. None of that meant anything to me it's, it, until I prepared for the show. It still didn't. Uh, I just love that combination of lyrics. I would sing that, you know, in the car as I was playing it because I just love singing that out loud. It's fun. And so it turns out it, there are like that makes a lot of sense to me. It's about being swindled by the music industry. In my well, opinion. there are four different versions of what it's about. That's yeah. that's version number one. Right. Um, it's about being swind- a critical, uh, cynical commentary on the music business. And the low spark of high, uh, you know, we were once, uh, we were children once playing with toys. That is said to be a reference uh, to the new bands that were out at this time, which Winwood did, was not a fan of and thought were not making the most. And there were certain bands he had in mind. And so we were once children once playing with the toys of the music business. And so are you right now, um, as well as the uh, percentage you're taking is too high priced while you're living beyond all your me. Anyway, so it's... Um, it, that's that's one. There's another claim that it's about cross dressers, which is the low spark of high heel boys. Yeah, I, think that, um, I, I think that one's not right. <laughs> and, although although and, that and, is what I thought when I was first hearing the song because I wasn't <laughs> listening to the lyrics all that well. And then but just a, the there's title. A third yeah. one, there's a third one that's very popular, and that is about a, it's a drug song, which of course would stand to reason given the uh, experience. Well, every, every, every traffic song is a drug song. Right. So so here here's the way this version this 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 interpretation goes. 
the street slang, and I don't even know if this is true, but this, this is in a very a number of different sources have this. The street slang for heroin was boy, and the street slang for cocaine was girl. So a high-heeled boy referred to a mixture of heroin and coke, commonly called a speedball. Mixing the two opposite drugs together was said to counteract their negative effects, leaving the best of each. The low spark is the description of the feeling, the physical feeling brought on by injecting the speedball. And the man in the suit is the dealer making profits on the dreams of his customers. And the gun that didn't make any noise is, you guessed the needle. it, the needle, the needle. So I, I thought that one was good. It doesn't really explain some of the rest of the song, however. But then I came across <laughs> on a uh, website, songfacts.com, uh, which is a great website, by the way, an interview with Capaldi, who... And his story about what the song is about. And truthfully, I don't buy it. I think it's more likely to be a drug song or a music industry song than his own explanation. But he was in Morocco um, getting ready to shoot a movie uh, called Nevertheless with actor Michael J. Pollard, who some of you may know from he just passed away recently. He was in Bonnie and Clyde. He was a very uh, signature uh, 60s, 70s actor. He's the, famous for having one of the most squashed-looking faces. Yeah, he's a very weird, very weird face. Uh, the movie fell through, uh, but they were sitting around while they were waiting to film the movie that never happened, writing lyrics all day and talking about Bob Dylan and the band, making up ridiculous plots for a movie. And then um, before he left Morocco, Pollard allegedly wrote in Capaldi's uh, music book, The Low Spark of High Hill Boys, period. That's what he wrote. That's all he wrote. And then he left. And so Capaldi says that this sort of summed up uh, Pollard for him. Uh, he was a, he had a rebel attitude. He he walked around in cowboy boots and his leather jacket. Um, and he was a, a little dude, but he was heavy. It was a heavy little dude. And he seemed like um, a low spark for him. Capaldi said the low spark for me was the spirit, high spirited of, of, of Pollard, you know, standing on a street corner, the low rider, the low spark, meaning that strong undercurrent at street level. Who knows? That makes about as much sense as most of the Capaldi lyrics do. And the thing that disturbs you is only the sound of the love of the boy. The percentage of playing is too high price while you're living. thing is is that you know at the end of the day it doesn't matter i think most of these lyrics are are written vaguely enough that you can bring your own meaning to them they're not like bob dylan talking about the lonesome death of hattie carroll where <laughs> you know you know he, he, you have to bury the rag in your face at the end of the song and he wants you to feel exactly a certain way this is obviously much more gestural in terms of its imagery i think one of the things that that, that probably hasn't been focused on enough it's just the power of the music and the arrangement it's such a brilliant arrangement the way it fades in mm -hmm. with you know just like you know just this sort of almost metronomic piano the bonk 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 
And then, you know, Steve starts singing over you know, that, that, that beautiful opening lyric. You know, if you see something that looks like a star and it's shooting up out of the ground. And then when he gets to the chorus, it all of a sudden double times. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, and that thing that you're hearing is only the sound of the low spark of high-heeled boys. And then, boom, horns, piano, drums, the whole thing just takes off. And it somehow manages to sustain its interest through through 11 minutes, 12 minutes, actually, because it never actually gets you the, the, the same, you know, you know, arrangement, the same, you know, tempo is kept throughout the the structure is the same throughout the song but they they always find a different variation on it a different arrangement of it it never gets boring it is traffic's i guess not their longest ever song but certainly their best truly epic song and there's a reason that this one of everything that they ever did still to this day is one that people will hear and they'll be like oh i know that one and then every time they get to the chorus they'll start bobbing their heads because it's fantastic too Scott, tell me that you at least agree about that. I do, and you hit most of the uh, the points. That that <laughs> gradual fade-in piano, saxophone, bass, all with prominent parts during the course. Yes, Low Spark is no doubt the highlight of uh, of the album that bears its name. Um, and again, so, it lives, and, uh, and yes, it is still a, a good bathroom song for DJs <laughs> all across the country. So now tell me about why... My least favorite traffic album is one that you actually like. Yeah, so it's, you know, I, I, I think part of it is explained by the fact that we have different takes, largely when it comes to progressive rock. Uh, and I think it's one, one genre where our, our tastes differ. I like Shootout at the Fantasy Factory, which again, strangely, went to number six on the charts. This sold a lot of records back in the day, and yet, when is the last time anyone said anything about Shootout at the Fantasy Factory by Traffic? I mean, never. I think I think people bought it because of the cool album cover. They yeah, had these right. both that though, and Low Spark had right. these die cut albums that were uh, meant to look like three D cubes. I'll tell you why we bought it. Because actually, I realized I own this too. So I said three, but this was my fourth <laughs> album. I'll tell you why we bought it. Because of the last album. That's why we bought it. Uh, it, it true. <laughs> true. That one yeah, is a factor even back then, yes. Uh, but also, you see, you got four, mus- four members of the Muscle Shoals play here, and I think add some, no pun intended, muscle to uh, to some of the tracks. David Hood plays bass, Roger Hawkins plays drums, on a bunch of tracks. Um, there, there are some elements of funk. I like the way that percussion plays on a lot of these songs. Uh, you know, not just drums, but different sorts of percussion. So uh, the title track, Shoot Out the Fantasy Factory, really like it. Uh, this is ominous chords, nice percussive groove. The two, the two songs I like most here, and at least one of, those, one of these would make my five at the end of the show. I, I, I like Roll Right Stones. Uh, the funky wah-wah guitar, very soulful tune with a great arrangement. And halfway through, this is a long one, it's 11 minutes or so, Halfway through, it really finds its stride. Uh, the drums by Hawkins on this one are, are great. Uh, and and uh, that, that, that chorus, the roll right stones. Death awaits with pearly gates For those who have been mesmerized Many years have come and
will sustain other road rides Love that. Tragic Magic is another one, which is an instrumental. It's the one place on the... There's a little less saxophone on Shootout at the Fantasy Factory, but Tragic Magic is one point where Woods playing really shines through. As well, because he wrote it, that's why. <laughs> correct. I'm like, yeah, you got to highlight yourself. Very cool, right. very smoky, atmospheric, uh, jazzy sort of feel to this one. Again, that those percussion sounds come in. I, I, I think that maybe... Um, the different contributions on bass and drums, the rhythm section, probably makes a difference for me here in how much I, I like a lot of these songs. I didn't even mention the one song that Jeff is going to actually defend from here, which is one called Uninspired, which is the last track on here. But uh, I, I really like... And it's, I, I think it's very... I was thinking about this this morning. I think it's very listenable. I think it's one of the albums I will return to from the from the Traffic catalog as being one that is, that is just very listenable. For, for people who perhaps aren't completely into traffic or, 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 or have the entire catalog at their, at their ready, I think Shoot Out of the Fantasy Factory plays well. It's a listenable album. Um, and, yeah, I really like Roll Wright Stones. Randy? Yeah, I, this album um, is good. I think it, 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 it did the job for us back then because if you really, really like Los Barker High Hill Boys and you want to hear more, let's, I want more, then here's some more. Um, starting with Shootout at the Fantasy Factory, just sounds like it's a continuation of the last album. Um, it's not something where you would ever kind of hum it to yourself. I can picture it now in my head, having listened <laughs> to it, but you can't just hum that song. But it sounds just like a long traffic riff, like you would see in concert, uh, which they love to do in concert. I do like Roll Wright Stones a lot, and I like the lyrics to it. Open up the heavenly skies, death awaits the, per the pearly gates. It was very spiritual, and it seems to be obviously about Stonehenge um, or something like Stonehenge in England. Uh, that's what the Roll Wright Stones uh, were about. Um, and yeah, I, the tragic magic, I don't, even, I don't even really remember it that well from before back in the day so i don't think i played this album that much frankly that's why i don't remember so much of it um and i think that was really nice evening blue was a class obviously a capaldi winwood and i did not and I, you know I, I i hear i guess um uh, you're gonna like um uh I, I, sometimes i feel so uninspired and i just i'm not that song just does not make it for me 
well, the name sometimes I feel sometimes I feel so uninspired. It, it feels like a dare, doesn't it? It, it? It's one of those titles that you think people are going to hold against you for the rest of your life. And in fact, the critics did. They said, like, whoa, well, you know, like that's the secret subtext of this entire album, isn't it, Steve? Sometimes I feel so uninspired. Sometimes I feel like giving up. Sometimes I feel so very tired or like I've had enough. But the fact of the matter is, it's the best song on the album. It's the last song on the album. It's the one that concludes it. The same way that every mother's son kind of wraps up John Barleycorn. Uh, it's a big piano ballad that I really love uh, because it has a gravity that none of the other music on this record has for me. When when Winwood gets into the chorus, uh, you know, he says, you know, don't let it get you down. There's no reason for failing. You know, smile and turn the other cheek. So, you know, by tomorrow, by tomorrow you'll be sailing. But don't let it get you down. the only thing on this record that reminds me of the great traffic of yore and it's funny is that i think that it's uh the only thing on this record that will remind me of what i like about what comes on the next album which of course scott hates well hates is a strong word i, I think it's the worst <laughs> uh when the eagle flies uh from 1974 and i i i feel that this is the most extreme example in traffic's category of of um, prioritizing jamming over really flushing out <clears throat> songs. Right, too many of the songs on "When the Eagles Fly," "When the Eagle Flies." As I try to figure out why I don't like it as much as Jeff, too many songs there are are these really simple, relatively simple musical structures that then that then that, they sort of put put the their, their jams upon. And I, I don't know if it's as focused as I would like to hear the songs. There's, there's one called Walking in the Wind. That's one I, I do like. It's got a pretty great chorus. And I think that's one of the few times that there's a real sense of, of purpose and focus and everyone pulling in the same direction. Uh, but there's a lot of, like, I don't like Graveyard People. Um, oh, I don't so really wrong. like Memories of Rock and Rolla. Um I, 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 I guess when it comes down to it, the writing here, at least for me, in terms of getting to a, an end point, in terms of getting to a fully realized song from this initial sort of idea, doesn't work in a majority of places on When the Eagle Flies. 
Okay, well, I'm going to just tell you right now, I think nearly every single song on this album is good. And some of them are actually straight up excellent. So you can be as wrong as you wish, but <laughs> time will tell the tale. Maybe the clips will tell the tale. I don't know. I think the, the weakest song on this record is probably actually the first one, Something New, which is okay. It's not a bad song. It's actually one of the shortest songs on the record. It's only like two and a half or three minutes or something like that. But it's kind of an ungainly melody. It doesn't really come together, um, you know. You know, this is the, the entire album is basically the classic Winwood Capaldi mix, um, but it immediately grabs my attention with the second song, which is Dream Gerard. This is a song he wrote with the guy who was the lyricist for one on the, another one of these obscure British bands that nobody remembers called the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Uh, with well, a name like that, how could you forget him? Well, you, you, if you were a, a Brit growing up in the 60s, you didn't because they had I'm the Urban Spaceman, which was a big hit single in, in England. And, of course, if you've ever watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, remember brave, brave Sir Robin, brave Sir Robin ran away, bravely ran away, away. That guy, the minstrel, that's Neil Innes, who's a member of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. I think he was their lead singer. Uh, but their lyricist was a guy named Viv Stanshaw, who... Uh, worked a lot with Steve Winwood over the years and mm -hmm. including into his solo career. Yep. And he writes a set of lyrics which probably are the less examined the better. But that groove, that groove that 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 Scott denigrates, God, I love it. It's like a very simple four note, five note groove that just returns and returns again. And this thing plays for eleven minutes. But man, I am just enthralled for all 11 minutes of the band playing fundamentally for the reason that this is a band that interests me this is a band whose instrumental interaction works when winwood capaldi chris wood and you know you know all they have a couple of side players with them at this time as well but when that fundamental trio just get into a groove and lock in i'm, I'm willing to listen to them for as long as they're willing to go on Graveyard People, a song you denigrate. I love that song. <laughs> it's so dark and strange and, you know, uh, grim. There's a grimness to it uh, that, I guess, grabs me. Uh, there's, a, you know, a, again, a, a driving groove that isn't like, it's not like, like you know, Freight Train, Creedence Clearwater Revival kind of thing. Uh, it's much more of a, like a... A, a slow death march but i like that i find that to be very very compelling and then on the second half you have songs like walking in the wind and then the final track when the eagle flies which is very acoustic and almost a very free-floating thing with uh i know they got rebop there playing the congas um, right before that they, they let them go from the band i love that kind of free open sound 
uh, this to me is a much more compelling mixture of sounds, tonalities, and grooves than anything I ever heard on Shootout at the Fa Fantasy Factory. And, you know, if you're going to say, like, well, the lyrics don't make much sense, well, wouldn't the lyrics ever right. been a That's reason a to come to a traffic song, all right? <laughs> Having heard the arguments of both parties. Uh, yes, 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 Judge Barnett, Your yeah. Honor. The court rules for Scott. Yes. Um, the, uh, Appeal. uh, Appeals. The, the, there, are, there, are, there are three good songs on this album. Uh, the first one, Something New, which is actually much more like a solo Stevie Winwood song right. than a traffic song. Uh, which is why I'm surprised that uh, that Jeff would uh, would disparage it because we're going to hear wonderful things about solo Steve Winwood, right. and then Walking in the Wind and When the Eagle Flies are both solid traffic songs. They're, they they could have been uh, Walking in the Wind could have been on any of the previous albums, um, and When the Eagle Flies is also a typical classic traffic piece that again could have been on any of the uh, not not John Barleycorn because these songs would have spoiled the perfection <laughs> of John Barleycorn. <laughs> Uh, but earlier ones. Anyway, so uh, it is. Uh, it, it did have three songs that I hadn't heard before that I liked, and the rest of it I will never hear again. Oh, that's a shame for you. It is a real shame for you, because I think this is better than... Uh, a, a better way for traffic to be remembered than most people realize. You know, once the court is ruled, Jeff, that's when you're not, you can't say anymore. <laughs> are, 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 am, I, am I in contempt now, Randy? <laughs> are, are you going to send me to podcast jail? Are you? You sound like you're in contempt. Are you going to have the the <laughs> the, the the large but funny and endearing bailiff carry me away uh, and put me into the, into the cell? So because I, I I have to tell you a story. So I was in this movie, this feature film called Inalienable in L.A. It's a it's a uh, it's a it's a science fiction movie, stars Walter Koenig of and was written by Walter Koenig of Star Trek, um, and uh, and and um, uh, Marina Sirtis uh, from Star Trek: Next Generation. Uh, and a bunch of other Star Trek people and and people you've you've heard of, um, and so I got on set, and uh, as soon as they found out that I was a lawyer, because it was the last third of the movie is a courtroom drama, so as soon as they found out I was a lawyer, I was, which is what part I was in, um, they started using me as a technical consultant. Right, and and one of the guys um, was an extra playing the bailiff, and he comes up to me and he said, "Could you tell me how a bailiff stands?" <laughs> <laughs> Upright. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good posture? And, no, no. There's a certain way that I, I never thought of it before. But since he asked me, there's a certain way you spread your feet wide. You kind of cross your arms and you sort of stick your pelvis out. And you're kind of a macho guy standing behind the prisoners who are in front of you. And so I showed him how a bailiff stands. And if you see the final movie, he's standing the way I showed him. And we should we should credit you for technically consulting on the, on the way a bailiff presents. I love it. All right, this is, well, what better transition <laughs> into the remainder of the show, which we will be actually be fairly brief about, which is Steve Winwood's solo career. Now, here's the thing about Winwood's solo career. I, you know, I don't think Scott or Randy are as big a fan of some of the work that he did here as I am. I like it quite Perhaps, a bit. What did you say? I like it quite a bit. I, 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 I think for, for, a, for a 70s star to transition to the tastes of the 80s, I, I don't think too many did it better than, than Winwood, actually. I mean, I mean, it's like, you know, okay, Genesis did it better. But beyond yeah, that, yeah. like, I think Winwood did a pretty good job. Now, he, he's one of these guys who's a very slow worker. And that's primarily because, you know, he, he really thrived in a band context when he had collaborators. And so, like, he took three full years to put his first album out which is just a self-titled Steve Winwood album. And frankly, it's not that great of a record, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I mean, there's, there's a couple good songs on it. The two ones that they released as singles, like, was it Hold On? And I can't even remember what the other one is. Yeah, I don't do much for me. But I do like Vacant Chair, um, which yeah. is very yeah. long. It, it's too long, frankly. It could you, could you could hack a minute out of that thing, and it would still be fine. But it's a... It's a really nice, really easy, and it's almost sort of futuristic in the sense that at the end of Vacant Chair, he starts using these very – this is 1977, right? He starts using these synth tones on it that you're like, oh, wait a second. I, I, I can I can see the eighties coming that's, right over the horizon. That's, yeah, that's yacht rocks music. I can hear yeah. it. song i like that song and i really like those synth tones and this is something that is divisive now if you don't like so the early 80s sound synthesizer sounds keyboard sounds drum machines sequencers boy then we're just gonna have to agree to disagree about that sort of a thing this is just a a, an unbridgeable gap in terms of opinion but steve winwood at this point was kind of a musical hermit he just had his own home studio in like you know rural England and he overdubbed and recorded everything himself. He was doing the Stevie Wonder Prince trip (laughs) where he was recording every instrument himself. Drums, guitars, keyboards, vocals, anything that needed to be done, he'd do it himself. And he did it on his next album. And this is one that I actually think is a genuinely great achievement. It is an album where it opens with a song it has like a nice, beautiful keyboard intro, organ, and it's very kind of like almost contemplative. And then all of a sudden that synthesizer comes in and the name of the song is While You See a Chance. And it's almost as if a giant 
giant sign announces welcome to the 1980s. album is Ark of a Diver, and I think it's a fantastic record. I, I think so, too, by and large. Uh, something that struck me yesterday as I was sitting in church on While You See a Chance, which has always been one of my favorite Steve Winwood tracks. It's great. I love, I love, I, I do love those synth sounds. Wow, 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 Okay, but what does yeah. Winwood do on While You See a Chance? Before the lyrics start, he cycles through an entire, you know, verse-chorus structure which is what the, what the organist at church does to give yeah. everyone the chance to know what they're about to sing. And so exactly. you, you cycle through the verse chorus, everyone knows what's coming, and then you hit them with, da, 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 write the lyrics uh, while you see a chance. It's a great, great song. And really, lyrically, um, you know, so, so we, we've mentioned this a few times, but, you know, through Traffic's career and much of Winwood's career, Using, he's using outside uh, lyricist. He still would in the future, but the lyrics are so throwaway to, as to not matter in a lot of cases. This is one of those opportunities where the lyrics do make some uh, make make a difference, right? There's there's the sense of spirit and strength and uh, an opportunity. And he wrote it with well. an English professor from the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, which I love. <laughs> Eau Claire, it's Western Wisconsin. Okay. It's a nice little town if you've ever been there. Nice, yeah, it is. It's a guy named Will Jennings, who, of course, then went on to write like lyrics. He like he left academia and went yes. into the rock world. Um, but uh, yeah, he wrote lyrics for everybody. But yeah, he's been a sort of a serial collaborator with Winwood from that point onwards. But like, yeah, I mean, there's simple lyrics. But like, you know, when you say when that old gray wind is blowing and there's nothing left worth worth knowing, that's when it's time you should be going. And because those chords are just this this constant cycle, this ascending chord change cycle. Mm-hmm. When you see a chance, take it. Find romance, break it, because it's all over you. Um, and then it goes right, as you said, it goes cycles right back into the verse. Uh, it's a song that that it's only like it's five minutes long, which is long for a single. But like every time I hear it, I just mean click back, and I just hear it again. <laughs> and click back, and then I realize I've spent a half an hour listening to one song on repeat, and that's the best possible tribute i can play to a song it's the same way i feel about things as iconic as jumping jack flash all right and yes this everything about the synth tones and the drum machines and all of that all done by winwood alone you know at home you know on this thing scream early 1980s but man i mean what tribute can you play can you pay to that early 1980s sound if not to say that hey this thing is as compulsively listenable to me as Jumpin' Jack Flash is. When some cold tomorrow finds you, when some sad old dream 
there are even some vaguely disco turns in places. It is 1980. And actually, yeah, you get some of that on like Ark of a Diver or and Spanish Night, Dancer. Night Train yeah. is, is Night what Train, I'm thinking yeah. of for sure. But Ark of a Diver is a great song too. It's Ark of a Diver is one of those songs I never knew the title to because yeah. it doesn't really highlight and you just hear it in the middle of, you know, 40 minutes of nonstop rock uh, or whatever the, you know, the station's doing. Whatever and, your radio, yeah, your radio play format right. is. And, and they'll never tell you what the song is. And of course, this is far beyond or far before... Uh, uh, you know, Shazam or ways to find out. And so at some point I figured out, oh yeah, that, that, I guess that's Ark of a Diver. But that's a really great song. I, I've always liked that one. You mentioned Spanish Dancer, which I think is highlight. Night Train's very good. It's not, you know, a, a five-star legendary album, but when it comes to Steve Winwood's solo output, uh, it's right at the top of the list. And I think he's finally feeling confidence you know he, he was always reaching out to capaldi or someone to, to sort of help him through even on the first solo record capaldi co-wrote i think for, for the sixth try or yeah something right. like that and it's almost a traffic album, right basically. nearly yeah. and this is one where he's finally stepping out and and it took him three years it's three years since his, his debut that uh, he feels like this is what he wants this is what he wants his music to sound like and as you mentioned jeff the the layering he plays everything and uh yeah if you don't like the fair lights and the, and the sequencers well he couldn't do this without them because he's doing it all by himself so it's 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 a necessary evil quote unquote that, that those are present here i think he makes them work as well as they can Andy, I know you don't love this stuff, but can you find something good to say, at least about why you see a chance? Well, uh, I think some of these are nice uh, pop hits for sure. I think what turns me off about them is totally the synth, frankly. Um, to me, it's like listening to the soundtrack of Beverly Hills Cop. Um, and but I like I, that. I, 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 like, well, I like that Axel F song. It, 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 stands to, it stands to reason that you should if you're, if you're going to be consistent. Yeah. Um, uh, so I just can't I, I tried to listen to it I couldn't really listen to it I did go check out the playlist of the concert I heard uh, in Vegas with him and they played two uh, Winwood's uh, uh, you know po Winwood solo songs in this concert one was um, uh, There's a River um, and it turns out that song did not make the, uh, the concert album because they didn't play it in Madison Square Gardens they just played it for us but then I went and listened to it that's uh, and I, yeah. and I like that song. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I can't distinguish the albums because this, this is all I know. The only <laughs> no, that's what I'm I here did. for. I could definitely right. do it. Uh, and, and, then, and then they played Split Decision, so that's got to be on a future album as well that you're, we're going to talk that's about. Back, so in, back in the High Life. Yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, the one he wrote with, with Joe Walsh. And, and I, I like that song too. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. I've seen Joe Walsh play too. I like Joe Walsh a lot. So yeah. that's, that's my, uh, my takeaway from the amount of research I was able to force myself <laughs> to do for this segment. Um, and uh, I just, I enjoy listening to you guys enjoy music. Um, so I, I think it's, I'm happy for you both. 
Well, okay, but come on. Everybody who was alive during the 1980s, and I assume that you didn't just beam into this world from the future in 1995, Randy. You know the song Valerie, right? Oh, Valerie, yeah, yeah. call on me, call on me. It's a good song. It's it a is good a good song. song. It, it, one of the weird things about it, though, is that do, 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 do. it's in there somewhere. Very 80s synth. And the thing is that it wasn't even a hit until he broke right. big with Back of the High Life. They remixed it. Uh, it's from his next album from 1982, which is called uh, Talking Back to the Night. Big flop. Ark of the Diver was a hit. This one was not. And they remixed that song. It was released as a single at the time. Didn't succeed. But, man, again... I. You talk to us. Talk to me about a song that remember that makes me remember sitting in the back of you know my dad's car <laughs> um, in 1987. I'm six or seven years old, and Valerie is playing on the radio, and my dad is like you know looks back to me. He's like, "Ain't this cool?" And I'm like, "Yeah, Dad, this is cool." And like that's always going to be a great memory for me. And the song has its merits. It is a fantastically memorable song. I think it, actually it's the only one of the ones that I want to mention in a solo career that really does have like some serious '80s production ticks to it. It's like, wow, that synth sound is way too 1980s. No, it can't. I think talking back to the night is largely a massive disappointment. Uh, yeah. it's, it's it was rushed at least by Winwood standards. I was reading a story in which they did some he did some research and said, you know, most hit songs have 120 beats per minute. So he tried to write each and every song to have 120 beats per minute, which means this is a very monochromatic album. Yes. There's not a lot of dynamics happening. So after this, after talking he back to the night, he took a full four years. He, four years. He to changed. Make his next one. He changed managers. He changed producers. He changed, he changed wives, wives. He yes. changed hometowns. <laughs> he changed everything. His new manager said, "You got to be out in front. You can't be behind a keyboard. You can't be behind a guitar. You're a star. Act like a star." And one of the things he did for Back in the High Life was was actually brought in friends and stars to play. Joe Walsh was on here, and James Taylor, and others. And he did go away a little from the hyper-sequenced uh, synthesizer sound. There are actual instruments being played on Back in the High Life, which I think I love, lends I love a richness. You, I love how you say just like, oh, oh, yes, there are others. Like, there's Shock Khan. Shock, yeah. There's, there's Nile <laughs> Rogers. Right? There's a lot. There's, like, there's, there's a lot. Randy Brecker. I mean, there's like there's everybody. <laughs> Again, this is one of these things where I was talking about the Dave Mason album. It's yeah. like everybody and everyone was there because everybody likes Steve. You know, that's what they do. And, and I do wonder in part if we were primed as a country for a Steve Winwood comeback because of the big chill and, and the inclusion of Give Me Some Lovin' and those 60 R&B hits that were sprinkled through the soundtrack by June of 86 when Back in the High Life was coming out. Maybe people were, were longing for the sound of Steve Winwood's voice. Apparently they were because it sold like crazy. Um, it's one of those albums that defines 
the eighties. I was, I was, I uh, I was mowing the lawn a few weeks back on my on my lawn tractor, and I was uh, I had I was wearing a polo shirt because I had got home from work, just changed the pants, but not the shirt, and I had my my uh, my uh, the three M work tune, so they're these giant headphones. I can listen to music, and I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm listening to back in the high life and singing along. It's like the most dad thing ever, um, <laughs> but I liked it. This is, I, I think it's a really good album, especially considering the time. I mean, June of 86, you have a lot of things happening in the music uh, business and industry. And None he was of able them to, good. <laughs> most of them not good. Right. But I think they're, they're, they're you know, Jeff's uh, let you talk about Back in the High Life. I know you love that song with very good reason. I will only ask if perhaps Back in the High Life's mandolin paved the way for R.E.M. to break down the door with losing my religion uh, oh, using the man. same instrument. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it, Scott! <laughs> You're stealing my ah! That was exactly what I was gonna say. The, uh, Finish your thought, though. Okay. The other, the one I'm gonna mention because it will be in my top five. So uh, there's a song called "Freedom Overspill," which is really great. I love that song. That's it's, a good song. That's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. wrote that with the nephew of the guy who wrote the James Bond novels. Yes. A hilarious little fact. Ian Fleming's nephew, George, yes. is, is like a, a frequent collaborator of Steve Winwood's for some reason. And uh, that's one where Joe Walsh plays uh, guitar and he, you know, he did it uh, live in the studio, just just impromptu, made that solo up in the studio, which again leads to some of the more lively, organic sounds on Back in the High Life. Steve Ferrone, uh, the Heartbreakers drummer for a long, long time, plays on Freedom Over Spill. That's a really tremendous track. I like finer things a little less. Um, Higher Love is fine. Um, Take It As It Comes has this progression that makes it sound like Celebration from Cool and the Gang, which, again, he's going to steal from or borrow from good places. You know, Nile Rodgers is playing here in places and Joe Walsh and others. So, you know, Back in the High Life is one of the albums that I think uh, does still have a real artistic quality to it from this era. I mean, the funny thing about Higher Love, of course, number one hit single, right? The album didn't quite get the number one, but Higher Love did. And it's actually not one of my favorite no. songs. But, I mean, I, but there's so many things that you, you, you can understand exactly why it went to number one. And it went to number one on, like, on its good qualities. Like, I love the sort of Caribbean beat that opens it, you know, which is all, real drums. It's not like sin drums or anything like that. And then, of course, Chaka Khan in the background. God, her voice is just unique and it's, it's so memorable. Um, but, you know, it, as a song itself, I don't know, it's a little bit sort of, eh, it's a bit, you know, cliched to me. The same thing about Finer Things. I don't love that. But, yes, Scott, you stole my thunder. You, <laughs> I've done it to you so many times. It's only fair that you do it to me once. And we do this inadvertent because if we, if, if a little behind the scenes, if, if we have a, a strong point to make, we'll send it via email. So 
when we steal each yeah. other's points, we're not trying. <laughs> we do we're it we're not doing it. I, I, sometimes we'll I even say, like, I want to talk about this song. Don't touch it. Yeah. Right? But I love Back in the High Life again. This is a song that I think is basically about kind of, it's kind of in a dark way. It's kind of about, like, falling off the, the yes, wagon. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally about, like, yeah, you know, I used to be all sober and dried up. Now I'm drunk and it's great. <laughs> it's terrible to say that. But it's such a beautiful mandolin part. And again, this is the thing: is it doesn't sound like you know electronified, um, you know, you know, weirdly overprocessed rock. It, it sounds real. There's real people playing it, and it starts with that mandolin piece right up front at the start of the song. And I, you know, he plays it. I think. I think it's Winwood playing it again, pointing out that you know, you know him for his keyboards, but he could actually handle pretty much every instrument that you wanted him to. Um, but you know, it used to seem to me that my life went by too fast. And you know, he just talks about, "I'll be back in the high life again. All the doors were closed one time, have opened up again." It's a wonderful song, and yeah, I do very much get that REM losing my religion vibe from it. Although I'll point out that they actually brought the mandolin out one year earlier on Green. They were using <laughs> it on songs like The Wrong Child uh, and Hair Shirt and stuff like that. But I still think that, yeah, you know, Pete Buck, he'll never admit it. It's too uncool to admit it, but he was listening to Steve Winwood. people did you had to do it and so i guess maybe we'll end with like his last big number one hit single on his next album which went to number one the album went to number one too on uh roll with it uh the uh the title track from uh, from roll with it um and again it was pretty quick it's it's uh, only about two years from back in the high life and i think this is a better follow-up than say talking back to the knife it's not as good as back in the high life but it even sounds m- well uh, I step back a bit. It sounds more real in places and more programmed in other places. It, it sort of yeah. goes in both directions. Roll with it. I've always loved roll with it, and probably because it's so close to a Holland Dozier Holland track, they had to give Holland Dozier Holland writing credit for their uh, Roadrunner is the song. Yeah, I'm a, Road I'm a Roadrunner. Runner. Say, yeah, it does. It, it's pretty obvious. But but there are Memphis horns on there. There's a, that that very eighty sax solo. Rock solid bass line. Uh, I, I've always really, really liked Roll With It. Yeah. 
other singles on here, Holding On, sounds a little too plastic to me at this point to resonate. Uh, but the Michelob song, Don't, Don't You, you know, know What, what the, the Night Can, can do. do. And I got to say, I like Don't You Know What the Night Can Do. Simple chord changes. That pre-chorus is lovely. Now's the time our dreams are finally coming true. That's a wonderful little piece of songwriting. I like that song. song. to sell you beer. Yep, yep. You know, night, nighttime, streetlights. I mean, this, this is why Neil Young did <laughs> this notes for you. Remember, yes. ain't singing for Pepsi, ain't singing for Coke, ain't singing for Miller. It would make me feel like a joke. <laughs> but, yeah, this is the corporate era of rock, but the music actually still is pretty good. And then I'll, I'll make one, one, one final uh, note, unless you wanted to send somebody else, Jeff, on uh, Winwood's solo career. And that is the very next album, which uh, which actually is a step down in quality called Refugees at the Heart. But there is one song he co-wrote with uh, Capaldi. Oh, yes. And I was actually, you're going to take my note. That was so, one I was One and too. Only Man. I think there are some some echoes of actually Freedom Overspill on One and Only Man, which is might be why I like it so much. But that's a, that's a good, solid track. The rest of the album is is not really good. And he'd take a really long break after that would reform traffic before another solo album in, I think, 97 or 98. But essentially, this is where the story ends. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's no shame in that, right? I mean, we talk about Eric Clapton, right? Hasn't he been a nostalgia act ever since the days of, I guess, MTV Unplugged, where on our um, our uh, Patreon-only episode, we joked that he was the only person <laughs> who was actually able to, like, it was our worst covers ever episode, mm-hmm. and his version of Layla was somehow managed to desecrate his own version of Layla. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but he was last relevant then. That was 93. Winwood beat him there just by a month or two. They're nostalgia guys now, and that's fine. Most musical artists have a finite lifespan. That's yep. not something that you know is something that should be looked down upon. It's very rare that you've got like a Neil Young or a Dylan or, or maybe even like a Radiohead kind of a thing where they just keep on puttering onwards and doing their own thing. Heck, even Greg Dooley, for some reason, seems to be putting out good music these days. Um, but what I really want to have emphasized at the end of this episode is the breadth of Winwood's musical contribution mm-hmm. to the pop charts, you know, starting in 1964-65, all the way to the early 90s, in so many different guises, so many different configurations, this man was at the core of so much wonderful music, from Spencer Davis Group to Traffic to Blind Faith to his own solo career, and he was around other people who similarly participated in those processes like Dave Mason, that it's just uh, one of those sort of, you know, crimes that I feel like it is our goal in this podcast to rectify 
that we we grant recognition to the great music and the great art that these people created and we rescue them from the 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 doomed label of sort of dad rock (laughs) or uh, you know like you know nostalgia acts this stuff was fresh when it was recorded it was vital it had vigor and i think it retains almost all of that to this day uh, let me um, add a couple things at the end here um, yeah. uh, about his solo career. I didn't, I couldn't bear to prepare, as I told you guys in advance. I tried listening to it, the '70s stuff, the the synth stuff turned me off. But every time you mentioned one of his hits, uh, even though I hadn't prepared for the show, uh, the, the 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 song popped into my head. I could remember yep. it. It was very, very, it's very, very memorable. Um, so there's that. Um, I, I do want to uh, kind of bring our audience back a little bit because I'm afraid there might be some people out there that say, well, you know, I know Steve Winwood. I feel like, you know, Randy Barnett feels about him. It's like he's good. He was good. But I, I don't want to listen to him again. I just want to remind everybody that Steve Winwood sounded much different before he was a solo artist. Um, the, what he sounds like on Give Me Some Love and what he sounds like for Traffic is not the same. He doesn't have the same sound as he developed later on. And so even if you don't like the later sound, you may very well love uh, the early sound. And I will say that when I saw him play in 2009 with Clapton, um, he was the early Winwood. He didn't bring out back to the high life Winwood, really. I mean, he's, and he was able to sound that way. So that Winwood never went away. He's still able to song, sound like that. You'll see a lot of stuff on YouTube of him performing lately where he's still performing that way. Um, uh, and so, um, go find that music, go find that music. Um, and, uh, uh, and if you love this, the Steve Winwood singles, that's all the more reason to go back at the early stuff. But if you don't still go back, you're going to find it's a different Steve Winwood that you may fall in love with. And there we are, the end of our episode on, uh, traffic and Steve Winwood. And we reach the point in which all three of us give you listener, couple of albums and five songs this is such a a jumble with different bands and different names and uh so just announcing it right now up front we're gonna cheat this is gonna be a little awkward but let's just say this we're gonna try to maybe give you two albums from the breadth of his career maybe five songs from traffic maybe five songs from his other uh works whether it be from spencer davis or solo or blind faith and that's kind of the template but we'll go off off uh, off template so uh randy barnett is first uh who is from georgetown university where he's directing the georgetown center for the constitution find him on twitter at randy e barnett randy go ahead give us your musical choices well thanks again guys for having me on um it was a lot of work to get ready and it was all worth it i'm really glad i did uh it helped me listen to stuff i hadn't heard for a long time and exposed me to stuff i'd never heard before um, I'm going to cheat as we uh, I announced I would to you guys in advance, and we're all going to cheat a little bit because of the diversity of the stuff we're dealing with. So my top two albums um, are going to be John Barleycorn for sure, the top album. I mean, I'm not going to rank them, but um, John Barleycorn was the top album. And then the next album would be either Low Spark or um, uh, of High Heel Boys or Blind Faith if we're going to move out of the Winwood uh, out of the traffic category. So Blind Faith. And then I would put it, I would throw an honorable mention in here for Alone Together as an album uh, since we're, and, and mention Dave Mason's uh, name one more time since we'd moved on from him. That's my albums. Um, and because John Barleycorn is my number one album, I'm going to say every song on that album is a top five song. <laughs> and I'm going to thereby pick five other songs uh, to go with it. 
And that will be Paper Sun, No Face, No Name, No Number, uh, two songs I discovered in the 90s, actually, and didn't hear before, Low Spark of High Heel Boys, Light Up or Leave Me Alone, and I'm now going to cheat a, a little bit. I'm going to go Can't Find My Way Home, which is actually a Blind Faith song, but really should have been a traffic song. All right, uh, to me. So uh, taking two albums from the breath of, uh, of, of, our, of our episode today, one would be Blind Faith. Um, it's just a tremendous super group, as Jeff mentioned, one of the, one of the rare super groups that, that works and is perhaps more than the uh, individuals involved. And then uh, from, from Traffic, John Barleycorn Must Die. There's not a bum track there. That, that's certainly one I would put there in the top two. When it comes to uh, music, uh, traffic songs. I'll give you Pearly Queen from early on. Uh, Medicated Goo, the single that would uh, be on Last Exit. That's one of my favorite traffic songs. Uh, Glad and Empty Pages from John Barleycorn. And uh, Roll Right Stones, just to tweak Jeff a bit, uh, is also on a list of five. And if we go for uh, Winwood involved tracks not from Traffic, uh, Give Me Some Loving from Spencer Davis is there. I, I don't know if there's a human being on the planet that's not heard that song, but if so, you should. Presence of the Lord from Blind Faith. Goodness gracious, one of Clapton's greatest compositions. Um, and then from his solo career, yes, While You See a Chance. Uh, Freedom Over Spill, which is so good even Randy likes it. And Back <laughs> in the High Life uh, would be the fifth song from the Winwood solo or non-traffic uh, element uh, of our show today. Jeff, over to you. Oh, but the albums are so impossible right okay so because both of you mentioned blind faith i'm gonna just skip it and say don't you know it's not gonna be on my top two but for god's sake if you listen to through this episode and you don't already have if you haven't already gotten blind faith at this point then heaven help you i'm gonna mention mr fantasy the first traffic album i think i'd love the psychedelia get the, actually the american version called heaven is in your mind uh, that has the singles, the non-album singles like Paper Sun and Hole in My Shoe on it. And then the second one I'll say from the second phase of Traffic's career would be John Barleycorn. As, just as we've talked about, it's almost like an undivisible whole. It's it's really, a, you know, structurally a perfect record. There's nothing on it that I would denigrate in any way. As for the songs, I'll do the same thing that Scott said. You know, I'll do top five for Traffic and then top five for the sort of Winwood elsewhere. And I'll say Paper Sun opening debut single for traffic i love it smiling phases boy that's just that's that's steve just blasting out at his best feeling all right that's my the best dave mason contribution to traffic of all time shanghai noodle factory that's their best song in my opinion and then finally from the second phase of their career say the low spark of high heel boys all 11 and a half minutes of it as for winwood in the side projects give me some loving scott said it he picked Presence of the Lord, but I'm going to go with Can't Find My Way Home. From his solo career, Why You See a Chance, uh, remembering being a seven-year-old eating ice cream in the backseat of the car <laughs> in the 1980s, I'll say Valerie. And then, yes, Back in the High Life. I love that song. It's the best song on his most successful solo album. And because our post-prerogative, I will say that you've really got to listen to Alone Together by Dave Mason and shouldn't took more than you gave is such a fantastic song off of such an underrated and lost album uh mason was never fit in quite with anybody he worked with because he was always his own man um but his 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 talent was real 
and it was most fully realized on that record and on that song. The Political Beats look at traffic and Steve Winwood. We thank our guest, the Patrick Hotung Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. His upcoming book is The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. It's Letter and Spirit, available for pre-order now on Amazon, out in November 2021. Find him on Twitter at Randy E. Barnett. Randy Barnett, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Political Beats. It was my pleasure. Very, thanks very much for having me back. Uh, great guest. Randy, thank you so much. Uh, Jeff, uh, we have a busy month shaping up, so let's uh, let's finish this, get back to the grindstone, and prepare for the next one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to revealing that I was born in the back of a greyhound rolling down the highway. <laughs> uh, we'll find out about that next time. At Esoteric CD on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Find us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash political beat. Support us, help the show stay ad free. We appreciate all your assistance there. Entry level, mid level, and then upper level choices for you to be involved with the program. Now, the part where we thank our Patreon supporters personally and individually for their support via Patreon, helping us keep this podcast ad free and for your patience over the past month or so, we say thank you, Patrick Gorta, Lex Myers, Randy Neese, Todd Perkins, Daniel Drager, Kay Kinney, Mark Newman, Roy Gilbert, Robert Habich, Jerry Daly, Steele McWilliams, and James Hines. Thank all of you for being a part of our Patreon, supporting us, helping keep the podcast ad-free, and uh, being just a part of this wonderful world of political beats patreon.com slash political beats for more info find the show at apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher tune in subscribe leave reviews share to friends share with friends nationalreview.com as well find us on facebook we're on twitter at political underscore beats this has been a presentation of national review this is political beats